0: Now I coach others on their plant-based journey. Jess as voice. Let's
1: welcome our guests. Captain's log, Stardate 2023. Today, we embark on a quest into the captivating realm of nutritional and biochemical science. Guiding us on this voyage is triple board certified Peter Rogers, M.D. Click like as we explore the enigmatic landscape of atherosclerosis, a topic as intriguing as the uncharted territories of space, boldly going where no plant-based doctor has gone before.
0: First play a true or false game, and then Dr. Rogers is going to go into more detailed presentation. So... Just stay tuned, and, and as I said, type in your questions in the comments if you want to have them presented to Dr. Rogers later on in the broadcast. Okay, Dr. Rogers, we're going to start our game of true or false.
1: It's time for true or false on Be Green with Amy Live. Answer true or false to Amy's questions in the comments below, and Amy will ask our guest for the expert answer.
0: Okay, we have a few different things that we're gonna be talking about today. And this is gonna make more sense to you as we explore more about this topic. But let's just start off with something that I, when I first heard Dr. Rogers' lecture, I was very intrigued about it because I didn't know about this. So true or false, a typical red blood cell is larger than a capillary, and therefore has to deform to pass through the capillary. True or false? Okay, Green Warriors, type in your guess. Dr. Rogers, tell us about this.
2: Yeah, a uh, red blood cell, imagine this is a red blood cell. It's bigger than a capillary. So to go through the capillary, it actually has, the capillary is gonna be tight. It actually has to bend back on itself to push through. Typical red blood cells, about seven microns. Typical capillary is about five microns. And the relevance is that a red blood cell is like a bag of hemoglobin. It has to be flexible, deformable. Okay, and as the red blood cell gets older, they typically live about 120 days, it tends to become more glycated, and there's other things about its plasma membrane that stiffen it, and it's less able to pass through those capillaries. And this is also the reason why, let's say somebody has an elevated, elevated hemoglobin A1C, that's another indicator they're going to have a harder time pushing their, their red blood cells through their capillaries. And we're going to talk about some other ways that red blood cells. Um, for example, when you eat a high fat meal, it sticks the red blood cells together and that makes it harder for them to get through these capillaries and that causes all kinds of problems with oxygen delivery.
0: Okay, and more along the lines of that one. Well, let me just say, I think we had, okay, we had a couple of people. I'm gonna oh. just get one thing from my chair. Yes, I think we had a couple of people answer. Very good, correct. Okay, and then we're gonna go back to our our next question.
2: My fancy backdrop for my chair. I put an old sweatshirt on there.
0: (laughs) A little contrast. (laughs) All right. So uh, we're going to go for our next question now. True or false, the thicker the blood, the higher the blood pressure, and the more prone a person is to clotting. Okay, Green Warriors, true or false? Dr. Rogers, tell us about that.
2: Oh, yeah. So the thicker the blood, that's called the higher the blood viscosity. And the higher the blood viscosity, the more prone the blood is to clotting. And so I'm going to tell you, first of all, just from the beginning, just so you know, I did a fellowship in vascular interventional radiology with the emphasis on peripheral vascular disease, imaging-guided surgery at Harvard. Okay, I've been interested in atherosclerosis, blood vessel disease for a long time, going back to the the mid-1990s. And I tell you that because I want you to understand that's why I say it with a lot of experience when I tell you, all of the conventional medical books on atherosclerosis, they're completely wrong. They're kind of stupid. They're, they're just baby talk, all right? And so the reason why high cholesterol increases atherosclerosis is because it makes the blood more prone to clotting. The LDL cholesterol makes the red blood cells stick together. And here's, here's a key point. You want to remember this the rest of your life, what I'm about to say to you. Atherosclerosis is a blood clot atherosclerosis is a blood clot and once you understand that then that will open your ability to understand tons of things about it but until you get that nothing's going to make sense okay because you're going to hear all kinds of things atherosclerosis is due to inflammation okay and we're going to treat it with an inflammation drug but that's bogus because you can cure it with just um, a low-fat diet you don't need anti-inflammation you don't need antibiotics because other people go oh i think atherosclerosis is due to infection no, no, no. I mean, well, I'll get into all that later. But but the important point is, look at Esselstyn, you know, he got 197 patients in a row, no recurrent events in four years on a low fat uh, vegan diet. And that's because it's the, the fat is the most important thing. So fat makes the red blood cells stick together for two reasons. The chylomicrons themselves will stick the red blood cells together, causing blood sludge. Okay. And then the second thing is that the LDL cholesterol has a positive charge on its surface. So imagine you have two red blood cells. So I'll make these two red blood cells here, these uh, green markers. All right. What happens with an LDL cholesterol, think of it as this this yellow thing, like yellow for fat. It sticks them together. I'll show slides once I get my talk, but it overcomes their negative charge. Normally red blood cells, they both have a negative charge around their outer surface called a zeta potential. That's a negative charge. All right. And then uh, something that's big enough and has a positive charge, like our LDL cholesterol here, the yellow, will stick them together. And that's important to know. Now, if you talk to the average doctor, I've never met a doctor in my life who knows what zeta potential is, a negative charge on the outer surface of a red blood cell. It's actually a negative charge on the outer surface, also your white blood cells and also your endothelial cells, the endothelial glycocalyx. And this is really basic to understanding atherosclerosis. So what I'm trying to tell you is, If you have a doctor friend, if you're a doctor yourself, they're going to find all of this stuff new. And, And that's what I'm trying to say is the conventional literature, it's so far out of date and wrong. It's not even funny and you can never understand it. And by the way, I'm also a neuroradiologist. I actually trained in neurointerventional imaging guided brain surgery, but I did not go on to continue with that. There's there's a turf issue in that field. All right, but what I'm trying to say is I look at these things every day, okay? (laughs) Atherosclerosis is a blood clot. You look at a CT angiogram, you can't tell the difference between atherosclerosis and a blood clot. That's because it is a blood clot. Okay, but anyways, we'll get into that more later.
0: Yeah, I just, when I, the first time I heard about the red blood cells that they had to deform in order to go in through the capillary. I mean, it was from you, hearing it from you. And it was just, I, I was just shocked and amazed that I that I hadn't heard any other doctor and I listened to lots of them on different uh, platforms and I had not heard any of them say that. And it, and it was just fascinating also to me that you were explaining about how they have negative charges around them. And, and we just really don't think about our, because we're walking around and we're not plugged into an outlet, but yet... You know, there's a lot of electricity, a lot of lot of chemicals and things going on in our body. And, you know, we really have and, and I think it's important to know these things, because when you go to reach for a certain food or or to, to make a decision about what you're going to expose yourself to, you have to think about this delicate balance of, of life that is going on inside of your body at a molecular level that we just take for granted. And so I had heard about the endothelial cells uh, from Dr. Esselstyn. But he didn't go into the detail that you do about the negative charge. He just said that they they, um, were were, uh, aligning in there. So just all these things I think are really important to know so that if people are trying to make decisions that they can make the right ones because this is all based on science is I guess what I'm trying to say. So let's go on with the next question. True or false green warriors? Oils, high fructose corn syrup, meats, like beef and now chicken's meat too if you don't know that and so is pork fish alcohol get converted in the liver into fat and leads to elevated ldl cholesterol Mm. so type in your answer for that question and then go ahead dr rogers
2: yeah um i'll tell you i agree with nathan pritikin nathan pritikin wrote this back in the late 1970s fat is bad okay and what i'm getting at is the body really can't handle that much fat. So you want to keep your dietary intake of fat pretty low. Um, high fructose corn syrup is tricky because it's a six carbon sugar like glucose. But what happens to it is it, when it comes into the liver, it's also metabolized very different than uh, glucose. Glucose goes into your blood, you absorb it from your gut, it goes all over your body. All right, The fructose goes through the portal vein, comes through your portal vein, so from your gut goes up to your liver through the portal vein. and It then enters glycolysis pathway. Um, Let's see, I'm getting a little fuzzy here because I stood up for a moment. It, it, it It enters glycolysis pathway, the three carbon phase after the regulatory steps have been bypassed. So what happens is it just quickly rushes down the second half of glycolysis to pyruvate and the liver's like, hey, I got nothing to do with this and it tends to store it as fat. Now, if you eat a fruit, You're getting small amounts of fructose at a time and it's coming packaged with fiber and other nutrients. When you drink one of these sweetened drinks or some candy or something, there's no fiber. So you just rapidly get absorption and that bolus into the liver. The liver has nothing to do with it. It'll tend to store that as fat. So uh, that's not not a good thing to do. Um, Alcohol, yeah. Alcohol gets made into, you know, like two carbon units to make fats, like acetyl-CoA. So... It's bad, and it's, alcoholics have some of the worst fatty livers. I see, I I see every day a minimum of ten fatty livers. Okay, it is so common. I would say the majority of Americans over uh, fifty, in my experience, have fatty livers. I, you show me, I and I just look. Patient's got a kidney stone. I look at the liver, fatty liver. It, it's 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 like automatic. Okay, and what does fatty liver mean to me? Fatty liver means diabetes of the liver. Okay, and sometimes it might still be in the pre-diabetes phase, but it decreases the liver's ability to sense blood glucose level and thus regulate blood glucose level, which the liver does during fasting to make sure the brain has an adequate amount of glucose. And if the liver can't sense the amount of glucose in the blood, it tends to just keep releasing too much with the result of hyperglycemia being prolonged. And that causes all kinds of secondary effects. So yeah, the bottom line is all this stuff here you want to avoid. I recommend, I agree with Esselstyn, no oil, not one drop. And I'm kind of biblical, okay, because I think, That's what it takes to be successful. I don't know if I could reset this this camera here. Let me try. We might
0: just be able to yeah, do something like that and then or (laughs) last time I think you stood up in the and it focused on your chair and then you sat down again. Yeah, yeah. Let
2: me try doing that. We'll try that. We'll see if that works. All right. So, anyways, um, what I mean by biblical is a lot of people they have every they think socially, everything in moderation. When in Rome, do as the Romans do, you know, go with the flow. And that's fine for social stuff, but it don't work for health. The older you get, the more fragile you get. And if you want to be healthy, it should be big biblical. Thou shalt not eat oil. You know, you tell like an alcoholic and a smoker. You tell an alcoholic, you don't tell me drink on the weekends. You tell him you don't drink anymore. You don't smoke anymore. That that works. That gives you your best positive. Ah, I lost my my backdrop, my old sweatshirt. Okay, anyways.
0: Well, that's it's it's true, and I think that that's that's something that a lot of people, if people here are tuned in and they have already adopted a whole food plant based diet. There's a lot of different doctors out there that are promoting it in different ways. So some of them are saying that you, that oil is healthy and that you should have it, and others are saying no oil, but you should have nuts and seeds and avocados. And so why don't you tell us what your stance is, because we're talking about oils and fats and LDL cholesterol here. So I think it's important to make a distinction. So where where, where do you come in as far as these foods go
2: well i'll also tell you something too like how did i kind of get into it's one of the things was you know i was straight down the pipe conventional doctor you know first of my class all this stuff i'm in my mid-30s on. i got real fat i was working too much I had a baby with the wife that year and um so i got fat i got 220 pounds it was just real fat for me and then um what happened is my mother was sick with cancer my father had coronary artery disease and i was kind of like here i am i'm supposed to be this great doctor both of my parents are sick and I'm fat and sick myself what the hell is going on okay it's conventional medicine can't do anything I went and talked to all these other conventional doctors they didn't know what to advise me you know and they all say go to the specialist go to the specialist well the specialist taking care of the cancer of my mother did the best they could and she outlived her prognosis but not as long as I wanted her to and my father you know I had read Ornish by the time my father went for open-heart surgery but I didn't want him to have open-heart surgery but I didn't know enough at that time that was many many years ago uh like over 20 years ago, I didn't know enough to talk them out of it. So what I'm trying to say is, then when I started reading the nutrition literature, I'm like, "Here's all the answers. It's here in nutrition and toxicology." And I'm like, "Gosh, why didn't anybody tell me this before?" And I tell you, I went back through all the biochemistry books, and I know well, I was like just about the best biochemistry in the whole United States. Okay, and it's not in the books. It, it, the problem is not because they didn't read it or they didn't they missed the lecture that day. No, it's not in the books. And then I found all this information, and it's there. It just doesn't ever get into conventional medical books. So I also saw on the internet, and I realized this will sound arrogant, but I realized I thought I could become the best doctor in the whole world. And the reason is by that definition, how do you define the best doctor in the world? Well, if you go to a university, they're going to say the best doctor is the one who publishes the most papers. So-and-so's group published 500 papers. They're the best, okay? If you go to a private practice hospital, they're going to say the best doctor is the one who um, makes the most money for the hospital. Like when I first went to private practice, I was in private practice for a little while, they go, Never, ever say anything bad about cardiology. I go, why? What are you talking about? Because I knew this one cardiologist is an idiot. You know, he screwed up this one easy case. And they go, no, you can't say anything bad about cardiology. I go, why? What are you talking about? They go, they bring the most money to the hospitals. You should never criticize them. I'm like, okay, okay, fine. All right. So what I'm trying to say though, what I would consider the best doctor is the one who can help the most people. And I saw there's lots of good stuff on the internet. There's lots of good sites, but I realized I got an unusual background and I know tons of stuff that's not out there. So by teaching that and sharing that, I could really help a lot of people. So I figured that's what I'm going to do. And um, I don't even, you know, I don't even monetize my channel. I, I, I'm a Christian, and I just I just saw it as, well, what else am I going to do? You know, my kids are kind of grown up. My wife works. You know, I'll try to be the best doctor in the world. It's better than nothing. I don't know what else to do. So there it is.
0: Well, we all, all of your fans appreciate you because you take a lot of time and thought, and you really cover topics that are just so important, like the one that we're talking about today. And uh, getting back to what we were talking about, because we were talking about the oils and how people who are have adopted a plant-based lifestyle, sometimes they get conflicting information and we're talking about LDL cholesterol. So what do you say as far as the oils and the nuts and the avocados? I mean, what do you say? I'll say
2: them? Esselstyn is correct. Okay. He says no oil, not one drop. It's all toxic. It's not a food. It's this modern processed thing. It's 100% fat. Liquid fat, it's toxic to your arteries. I'm gonna show a slide later. You know, the omega-6 are quite frankly what happened was back in the 1950s, Ansel Keys was he's actually a brilliant guy, and he'd done a lot of good research showing how bad saturated fat was primarily from animal foods. Okay, and then people said, Well, saturated fat's bad. Well, we've got the answer. We're gonna eat, you know, polyunsaturated fats, which was primarily omega-6 cooking oils. But then when they started to test those in the 1960s, they were actually worse than saturated fat. I'm gonna show a slide along those lines, okay. Um, and I actually recommend, now I haven't studied all the details of omega-3s, and, there's, and there are advantages of omega-3s, but an olive oil is a mixed bag. It's, it's like primarily MUFA, monounsaturated fatty acid, but it's also PUFA with some omega-6 in there, and it's also saturated fat in the ballpark of 14%. I think olive oil is a very bad idea. Plus, a lot of times they've gone rancid, partially undergone lipid peroxidation. They're quite atherogenic they're obesogenic. Um, I, I think they're a really bad idea. They, they cause blood sludge. They cause leaky gut. I, I recommend not one drop. And I'm, I'm also going to tell you, from what I've seen, if I look at the big societal perspective, I think there's a push to get people to stop eating animal foods um, for multiple reasons. Okay, I think the, the powers that be, the big money behind the scenes, they want people switching to plant-based diets. And you say, well, isn't that great? No, not really, because they're not, they are not—they don't want it for your health. They just want, I think they want to free up all that land. A lot of land is taken up by cattle. Um, I also think there's there's more to it than that. I think some of it is is—is actually, in my opinion, making the food supply much more narrow. If you look at the people, let's say, in Northern Europe in the past, our ancestors, you know, a thousand years ago, more, a couple thousand years ago, how did they survive the winter? With milk and eggs and the cattle okay so that's one more safety margin uh that's disappearing okay so that's one issue okay but i'm not going to get into all of that theoretical component um but um as far as moving towards plants they're not trying to move you towards plants in a healthy way they're trying to move you towards plants in a high fat way in a processed food way and i think that's a very bad idea and i gave you my simplistic idea of what's optimal health after this is after tons and tons of study to live like adam and eve but keep your indoor heating and plumbing. If they couldn't eat it, it's probably not a good idea. The only process would i need eat is simple, plain oatmeal with just one ingredient. Because when you put a second ingredient in there, they can add MSG to it and not tell you, okay, or other things. So I always want one ingredient. That's it. I'll never eat anything more than one ingredient. Um, and I prefer to eat stuff with no label on it. Rice, beans, potatoes, sweet potatoes, you know. Um, I think those are all secrets of health.
0: Yeah. With with oil, every, every oil that you could possibly eat, They're all about 120 calories a tablespoon. And the average American gets about four of them, four tablespoons a day because of the processed foods and all the other things that they're eating, not just their salad dressings or their cooking, their ways of cooking. And so, yes, it is not weight loss favorable. So, and yes, it can go rancid. That's why they put them in the dark bottles. But even so, it you know, how long is it going to stay stable on your shelf? So yeah, there's lots of different reasons that I agree that oil is definitely deleterious to your health. And earlier you, you said you were talking about your channel and everything. And I just wanted to say that thanks said we appreciate you. What a story. So I just want to give you a little feedback because you were talking about the the reasons why you were uh, doing this for us. And we are very, very appreciative of all your, your insights and your research and, and coming up with Uh, strategies for us to take on okay
2: actually I got one thing I'd like to add that excuse me with regard to the the cooking oils Um, there's a guy by the name of Tetsumori Yamashima Japanese neuroscientist and he was given the job of why are so many Japanese becoming demented when they used to hardly have hardly any becoming demented in the past and he came to the conclusion it was because they've increased the omega-6 cooking oils in their diet and he believed that was destroying the neurons in their brain he calls it the cathepsin-caspase theory. Um, and I, I've given lectures on that before. The gist of it is they undergo lipid peroxidation, which is like a free radical reaction, and they produce a toxic aldehyde called hydroxynonanol, and it destroys uh, brain cells. In particular, that's, that's dementia, cortical brain cells in general, and hippocampal brain cells. But it also destroys uh, some hypothalamus, hunger center cells. And he believes that makes it harder for them to regulate their hunger. Um, in addition, he thinks it also destroys pancreatic beta cells. And I thought that was a really interesting insight because you look at all these people from India. Okay, I always thought everybody from India was healthy because I would know a lot of uh, people in the medical community and they'd be pretty skinny. They go, oh, I'm a vegetarian. And I think, gosh, they're also healthy. Isn't that great? But then I saw a lot of them, coronary artery disease, diabetes. And I said, well, why why are they skinny with diabetes? Usually a person eating a Western diet with type 2 diabetes is fat, most of them, okay? And the reason I think it is, is because Yamashima showed that it was destroying pancreatic beta cells, creating sort of a diabetes type 1 or type 1.5, if you will, picture, whereby the person's often skinny still, because they're not making that much uh, insulin. So it's a pretty toxic thing. I think oils are bad. Stay away from them. Plus, then you got to wash your dishes because they stick to everything. I don't like them at all,
0: Yes. Yes, I agree with that that cleanup is a lot easier without using oils. And and I think that it just it came about, for, there are a lot of reasons why oil was being promoted, but one of the reasons was because they did a study and that in instead of butter, it seemed to be a better, health healthier choice than butter. But that doesn't make it healthy. It just that that's what the studies were showing. So that it doesn't make it a healthy choice. It just makes it less harmful, I guess. I don't know. I think all fats are bad and I agree with you. So, oh, here's something that um, I heard you talk about and I wanted to see. Oh, yes. Let's just do this next question. True or false? Stress and stress equivalents like a lack of sleep, dietary caffeine, and tobacco causes high blood pressure. Hmm. True or false? Go ahead,
2: doctor. Yeah, it does because. You know, the med school way of remembering stress is being chased by a tiger in the dark. So you get chased by a tiger in the dark. What do you got to do? You got to be ready to run. You got to be ready to climb a tree, fight, throw something, whatever it's going to take. Okay, so you need to crank up your blood pressure to suddenly get more oxygen and glucose to all your muscles that previously were resting. All right. So the catecholamines, that means adrenaline and noradrenaline. Those are the hormones of stress as well as cortisol. So all of those things, they'll increase intravascular volume. They're going to increase blood glucose level. They're going to increase the lipids in your blood and they also release neurotransmitter in your brain, yeah, they're going to increase cardiac output, increase cardiac heart rate. So they will cause their stimulants. I mean, they're going to cause high blood pressure. That's one of the things they do. And caffeine raises the same hormones as um, stress. That's one of the thing is there's a lot of people on the internet that, in my opinion, are talking nonsense about coffee and uh, caffeine. They're like, They'll say, "Well, oh, we all know stress is bad for you, but coffee is good for you. <laughs> yeah, right. It's the same thing. They go, well, it's got antioxidants. So it's got a tiny bit of antioxidants. That's all BS, okay? Uh, there's entire books about all the problems with coffee. What happens is a lot of times the older books are better. Modern research, people say, well, the balance of the research studies suggests that it's beneficial. That's because the corporations, they buy the journal, they buy the scientists, they produce all these fake studies to say their, their corporate product is good. So that's where all this coffee is good for you stuff comes from. I think it's uh, it's kind of a big joke. It's pretty obvious it's not once you study it.
0: Yeah, I, I, I imagine because they're beans, they have some health benefits, but there's other beans that are healthy too, and they don't have the caffeine in them. So stick stick with the beans that you eat instead of the ones that you brew. Okay, this is something that might be interesting. True or false, Green Warriors, the most common cause of blindness in adults over 50 are related To atherosclerosis. True or false? Okay, Dr. Rogers.
2: Yeah, that, that's, um, that, that answer is true, and so the reason I go into this is conventional medicine has a tendency to put all these different names on things with subtle differences and then go, well, this is disease number one, disease number two, number three, number four, number five, here's our treatment for number one, our treatment for number two, three, four, five. Okay, so what am I trying to say is they're all manifestations of the same thing. What are the most common causes of diabetes? There's diabetic retinopathy, right? Diabetes is kind of all this high fat diet, okay? How about another one? Hypertensive retinopathy. Well, it's kind of the same type of diet. High fat, high sodium. What's the other one? Age-related macular degeneration. It's the same sort of thing. Okay, what's the next one? Glaucoma. What's that associated with? Hypertension. It's all sort of the same thing. Atherosclerosis, retinal artery occlusion. They're all variants on atherosclerosis, like a Bach fugue on the subject of atherosclerosis. Okay, a fractal of atherosclerosis. So it's all kind of the same thing. And if you go low fat, low sodium vegan, you will reduce your risk of all that stuff. And so what I'm getting at is, Conventional medicine creates all these different categories of disease and says, here's treatment for number one, drug, surgery, drug, surgery, drug, surgery. All right. And whereas what I'm saying is I'm kind of going to go back to something. It's a, it's a there was a movie called Colors and it was in Los Angeles about gangs with Robert Duvall and Sean Penn. And Sean Penn was kind of a hyper young guy. Robert Duvall was the old guy, a little wiser. And um, Robert Duvall goes, Let me, this reminds me of a joke. Let me just tell you this joke. OK. And he says there are two bulls on a hill. OK. And the young bull says, hey, hey, there's some cows down there. Let's run down there and let's screw those cows. And the old the old bull says, let's walk down there and screw all of them, okay? And so what I mean by that is conventional medicines like the young, the young bull says, let's run, let's do it, okay? Versus the old bull's like, you know what? You go low fat, low sodium, vegan. That's how you prevent heart disease. That's how you prevent hypertension. That's how you prevent diabetes. That's how you prevent obesity. That's how you prevent all of these causes of, of blindness, okay? So- the smart move is, how can I try to prevent everything, that all the diseases, you know? And and that's sort of the great thing about this.
0: Yes, it is great because you don't have to design a specific diet for all of those. It's, it's the same diet. And, yeah, that is wonderful. Okay. True or false, Green Warriors? Chronic high blood pressure damages arteries. Okay. Type in your answers. Dr. Rogers?
2: Uh, Yes, it does. Over time, it's going to cause increased fibrosis of the arteries, scar tissue, collagen, and they're going to be less able to dilate. They're going to be less able to deliver oxygen. Oxygen has to get through that thickened arterial wall. Excuse me. The other thing that happens is we really kind of have two hearts. Let me explain. You've got your heart in your chest right here and it contracts. So contraction is called systole and it pumps blood into the aorta. Okay. When the, when the blood goes into the aorta, that's the ascending thoracic aorta, it's stretched outward. And that's during cardiac contraction phase, systole. When the heart relaxes, this is called diastole, then the Ascending thoracic aorta has elastic fibers. They recoil inward and that pushes blood down the path of your blood vessels while you are in the relaxation phase. Okay. The relevance is that somebody who's chronically hypertension for years, let's say over a decade, they've they've overstretched their ascending thoracic aorta. Just like an old sock. If you overstretch it too much, you lose that elastic, the elastic fibers, and you then lose that ability to be good at generating diastolic flow. So, The purpose of your heart, you know, is to be able to get blood up to your brain. Your brain is the hardest spot to get blood to. It is the highest thing up to pump to. So your blood pressure is largely dependent on, can you get enough blood to your brain? So you should be asking yourself, instead of just saying, well, I'll just take this pill. You should be saying to yourself, why is my pressure high? And the most common reasons are because you're eating too much fat and too much sodium and not enough potassium and not enough uh, magnesium. Okay, and so what I'm saying, though, is, the reason why you want to get your act together and reverse these problems as fast as you can to the extent that that's possible is because the longer you're hypertensive, the more you trash all the elastic fibers in your ascending thoracic aorta. And then you're going to be stuck with systolic hypertension the rest of your life. The heart has to compensate to get enough blood to the brain by pumping at a higher pressure or it's not going to be able to deliver adequate blood to the brain. Um, and then that systolic hypertension is going to be like a water hammer, water pick, It's going to be banging away at all your um, bifurcations. I'll I'll go into that in the talk, the the anatomy of that, but you see what I'm saying is the longer you delay getting your act together, the more you will develop irreversible disease, okay? And you don't want that because you're going to start scouring off all these little tiny bifurcation arteries in your brain, and that's going to drop the ability to deliver oxygen and glucose in those sites. So you superimpose upon that and increase metabolic demand for whatever the reason, because you're unknowingly ingesting a stimulant, for example, and you're going to predispose yourself to losing brain cells. Okay. Um, so anyways, yeah, I'll go into that in more detail once we, we we get further in the talk. But what I see a typical American doing is they're giving themselves diabetes and hypertension and they're progressively destroying all these little arteries in their brain. And then their brain cells don't have enough oxygen and glucose being delivered because their arteries are so scarred from the diabetes and hypertension that they just become stupid. I got my internal medicine friends, plus my own experience. I do a lot of biopsies and other procedures on patients. Um, They say every single one, they said virtually every single one of their patients over 60 is cognitively slow, you know, kind of like a cow. Yes, thank you. Uh, There's, see, everybody talks about different things. Well, you know, do cell phones cause cancer? That's the wrong question. The real question is, does this cause cognitive decline? Because cognitive decline is off the charts. I see tons of cognitive decline patients all day long every day. How often do I see a primary brain cancer once every six months? It's rare. It's always going to be rare. So that's not the issue. Cognitive decline is the big issue.
0: Yeah. And when you were talking about high blood pressure, because I, I don't know if people really think about it in that way that you were describing. And, and it kind of made me think about that like a garden hose. And if I just had a, a, a typical garden hose and I wanted to maybe clean something off with the water, I might put my thumb over part of the opening in order to increase the pressure, like blood pressure, increase the pressure of the water. And now I can knock things off pieces of dirt or things off of things with it because it's such a much higher pressure and thinking about something like that going on the inside of of my arteries, you know, it it would make sense that it would be damaging just like it could, you could have to be careful if you were using that garden hose with that high pressure on your screens in your house, because you could pop a hole in it. So it's, that seems like what's going on inside of the body. So it's, it's really, like a silent silent killer that we really need to be more aware of and, and not uh, just put it off to the side and think that it's not something that we have to address. Okay, so here's another thing that we can ask. True or false, pathologists know more about atherosclerosis than most cardiologists or vascular surgeons? Well, I don't know if we're going to have any of those people watching, but let's hear your answer.
2: Yes, that's true. And I I think it's funny because when I was a young guy, you got to remember, I was an imaging guided surgeon, vascular interventional radiologist trained at Harvard, and we did tons of angioplasties and stents. And we thought we were the real experts of atherosclerosis. We'd have conference every week with the vascular surgeons and argue about the details of atherosclerosis. And um, I also thought, you know, the cardiac surgeons know a lot about it because they are always bypassing the atherosclerosis and the coronary artery disease. Okay. But then, Once I got a little more experience in studying atherosclerosis, I realized, no, no, no. Cardiologists, um, interventional radiologists, and vascular surgeons, they're just a bunch of plumbers, okay? They're not the real experts on atherosclerosis. The real experts are the pathologists. And you will say, well, why why is that true? And here's the reason why. Because the pathologists, first of all, they look at it under a microscope. We look at, you know, catheter arteriograms, CT angiograms, MRI angiograms, you know, MRAs but they're looking at a microscope at what it actually is inside the cell. And I later started to look at my CT angiograms more carefully, it's a blood clot. The pathologists go, we look at our microscope, it's a blood clot, okay? It's not this cholesterol soup with inflammation. That's not as, you know, there's some cholesterol, there's some inflammation, but that's not the primary deal. And that ends up becoming relevant. Also, the pathologist has no dog in the fight. What I mean by that is imagine you're a cardiologist. You're not going to say something like, stents don't work that well. Because they'll go get out of here. They'll be mad at you. You're gonna if you're a surgeon. Can you say surgical bypass doesn't work as well as diet? They'll go get out of here. You know what's wrong with you? Okay. So what I'm trying to say is, pathologist he doesn't care if you treat it with a pill or a stent or a surgery or your diet. He just wants to explain what it is. So the best pathologist in the world. There's two of them. Uh, there's William Roberts. Uh, he's great. He wrote the like the best article I've ever written about coronary artery disease of the heart in he like 2,000 consecutive autopsies, and he went through all the coronaries. On these patients who died of myocardial infarction or, you know, related things, unstable angina, et cetera, and arrhythmia induced by that. Okay, anyways, I mentioned that because he came to the conclusion there's no such thing as single vessel disease. It's always diffuse. It's always diffuse. The relevance being is you can't stent your way out of the problem. You can only stent the big arteries and the hilum of the heart. You can't stent all the distal arteries. You can't stent the intramuscular arteries. OK, you can't bypass that. All right. So it's always diffuse. That's William Roberts. OK, he was out of Baylor. And then the other guy is Gregory Sloop, Gregory Sloop, MD. They're both pathologists. And he just did a lot of microscopic study of this. who's interested in the viscosity, the physiology, because doctors are pretty good at molecular biology and chemistry. They kind of learned that in med school and in, in, in college and med school. But you know what? They don't know almost anything about engineering. They don't know almost anything about it math or physics. They don't know almost anything about electricity. And I tell you this because um, Sloop was looking at it from an engineering point of view. Okay. If you look at the blood viscosity, the thicker the fluid you pump, the higher the pressure you have to pump to pump a thick fluid for the system. And like you were just mentioning, when the system is constricted, in order to pump the same volume through a constricted system, you have to increase the pressure, which means increase the velocity of the blood flow. There's no way around that. And when you start doing that, you start causing damage to the vessel because it's going to always come into a bifurcation. So let's say this is a bifurcation. It's going it's to hit the, the divider in the middle. And when it bounces off of that, the higher the velocity it hits it with, the more retrograde flow you're going to get, the more turbulent flow you're going to get. And that turbulent and retrograde flow damages the vessels in those segments. So, anyways, Gregory Sloop wrote a fantastic book. It's something like Cardiovascular Hemopathology and Blood Viscosity. It's the best book on atherosclerosis. Um, and, and again, because. They're just trying to understand it and they're not playing any games versus cardiologist is always gonna have to say, stents are the best. Surgeons are always gonna have to say, surgical bypass is the best treatment. And that clouds what they'll include in their. you get it. And then the ones trying to make the pills, they're always looking well. It's not just cholesterol, it's also inflammation. Why do they do that? So they can sell a drug for inflammation, okay? Make twice as much money, okay? And, and Esselstyn's already proven all you need is a vegan diet and so has Ornish has shown that. Plus there was a bunch of studies before that Uh, Walter Kempner had 19,000 patients. He showed all these EKGs where he reversed the the abnormal findings of atherosclerosis, the ischemic findings, okay? That's been shown over and over. And, you know, there's other doctors that had that same experience. They've done this also in animals like Armstrong with chimpanzees. They showed reversal in in monkey studies. They showed reversal of atherosclerosis in the monkeys when you take them off the high-fat diet. And William Roberts says, any herbivore, look at our teeth. They're flat like a horse, okay? Our jaw goes side to side to grind plant foods. We're designed like a herbivore. Any herbivore you feed a high fat diet, it gets atherosclerosis.
0: Right. And when you were talking about the stents and the bypass, I, I think about how somebody could have a tire on their car and maybe they drove over some, some nails and things and maybe a, a nail popped a hole and they might get like a plug in their tire, you know, and... and I would, I would feel uncomfortable driving long distance with a plug in my tire because chances are there's going to be some other things that are going to pop through too. So here you are, you just put a stent or maybe several stents or you just did a bypass, but, but like you were saying, it's just one little tiny section of the whole system. And, and people don't realize that, that it's just not this, this little road of, of a little bit length of, of arteries and, then, and, and that's it. That the yeah. blood is traveling through so many different parts and systems of the body. And if one section is bad, then you just drove over a whole bucket of nails, you know, and you just found the one. So there's yeah, in- a lot going on
2: in the in they they, what they do is they stent the epicardial coronary arteries that means the big the big parts of the coronary arteries that run on the outer surface of the heart that's called the epicardium the muscles called the myocardium and there's tons and tons of little branches of these arteries inside the myocardium and there's such a thing as coronary syndrome x or microvascular angina which is common and becoming more common and what i'm saying is they can do nothing about that nothing they can't even touch it they can't even stent distally because the vessels are too small plus they have to watch out for bifurcating vessels because if they stent over bifurcation, they jail the bifurcation, meaning that the origin of the bifurcated vessel branch point comes off. And if they stent across that, they're at increased risk to occlude that side branch. So you run the risk of knocking off branches, too, when you put a stent in. It's, it's a risky business. OK. And, you know, in, in an acute mild myocardial infarction, patient comes in the emergency room with a heart attack. They can get their catheter in there, slide their wire through the thrombus, stent open the proximal obstructive segment. That's great. They can save the patient's life. But most patients, that's not what they have. You hardly ever see acute MI's on the table. What you see all the time, every day, is chronic intermittent cardiac angina due to atherosclerosis, decreased you know exercise capacity as they're getting older, um, and um, those patients don't have a significant uh, change in longevity with stenting. It's pretty overrated. Plus, once you pop the stents in, then you got to put them on blood thinners, you know, like aspirin and Plavix and stuff, and then they're worried about bleeding all the time and. It, So it's, to me, it's like obvious, you know, I, people say to me, Oh, how could you eat that salad or something? I say, you know what? I'm not scared of a salad. Okay. It's not a big deal. I'll eat my salad. All right. Well, I'll tell you what I'm scared of. I don't want to end up on the coronary bypass table with with a rotating circular saw cutting open my chest, you know, taking a vessel off my leg and stapling it to my heart. The hell is that? That's kind of crazy in comparison with all I got to do is eat what my ancestors ate. I'll go with that.
0: Right. And, and, we, we know how to make healthy taste delicious anyway, so it, it's, it's a win-win as far as I'm concerned. Okay, true or false, Green Warriors? A stagnant cup full of blood, which, I mean, you wouldn't see that often, but just imagine it. Stagnant cup full of blood will thicken after sitting for a period of time. True or false? Okay, Dr. Rogers.
2: Yeah. So imagine we had two cups. Okay. One cup is water. Water is a Newtonian fluid, meaning it's the same while it's at rest as when it's in motion. It's just water. Blood's not. If blood is it has stasis, it tends to clot. Okay. So the problem is sluggish flow has a tendency to clot. Blood is, uh, it's called a fixotropic. It gets thicker. And that's going to end up being relevant for different situations. You don't want your blood to be too stagnated. And things that thicken blood, they're bad for us. You know, you want to be pumping blood relatively thin, more like water. You don't want to be pumping blood that's real thick like a milkshake. And when we eat these high-fat diets, we make our blood thick like a milkshake. And then we simultaneously typically eat a lot of salt. Like imagine a pizza, okay? Tons of saturated fat, tons of oil, and all this sodium in there. So you're all vasoconstricted, pumping a milkshake through it. Your pressure is going to go up quite a bit, okay? And then people do that often, twice a day, every day. They're always hypertensive.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I just found that that was so interesting. And I think that, that you also talked about what happens when we just don't move around maybe we're sitting for a long period of time so is that that's just like what's oh yeah i think that's what's left. going
2: on like you know you go on a long drive drive for like you know two hours or something to go somewhere and you don't get out of the car then you get out of the car and like everything is stiff and slow for a little while i think that's what it's about because you started to partially aggregate partially almost begin to clot your vessels in a lot of locations and that has to kind of get freed up so you get that blood flowing again to your muscles so yeah, you want to keep moving. If you go for a walk outside in the woods, there's not that many places to sit down. I don't think our ancestors sat down that much. And you look at a lot of these these countries, kind of these third world countries. You see these people squatting, which you know takes a bit of athletic ability, okay, and some energy. And so I don't think our ancestors spend that much time sitting around like we do in the modern world. A lot of us we sit at a desk quite a bit of time. So if you have to sit at a desk, I would advise like have some little routine that makes you get up more often. Like anytime the phone rings, stand up when you talk on the phone. Um, you know, when you when you're you know, let's say you're, you do some task that takes you a half hour or something. As soon as you're done with that half hour, walk around the room in a circle. Just do something to keep moving.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's and, and maybe sometimes you might even feel that tingling if you if your leg falls asleep. It's our body saying, hey, don't sit around too long because the blood is starting to get thick and it's not a good thing. So our body's trying to talk to us. You just have to listen. Okay, let's see if we have. Oh, here's another true or false. The endothelial cells that line the arteries can get confused and react as if there's a vascular injury. True or false? Okay, Dr. Rogers.
2: Yeah. So when a person's hypertensive, that blood flow is going to be coming up. So let's say this is a bifurcation here. So the blood this and the, this marker is a red blood cell. It's going to come up and it's going to hit the median divider right here. And it's going to bounce off that median divider. When it hits that median divider, it bounces off and you'll have retrograde flow. Excuse me. You'll also have turbulent flow. And a little bit is normal. But when there's an excessive amount due to hypertension, high systolic hypertension, for example, that turbulent flow and that backward retrograde flow, often called eddy currents, they confuse the the arterial lining cells, the endothelium. And what happens is when that happens, they'll have a tendency to shed their antithrombotic glycocalyx, their coating, kind of like the trees on a, on a hill or, uh, uh, are called the glycocalyx. Every cell has that, okay? And they're antithrombotic. they got their own zeta potential. So once they shed that glycocalyx, they'll start to express prothrombotic molecules, and the red blood cells and the white blood cells will have a tendency to adhere to that. So it's all bad. You have a constantly ongoing steady state of, thrombosing and clearing the thrombus, thrombosing and clearing the thrombus. And a person gets older, they'll have a tendency to make less nitric oxide. They'll have less endothelial precursor cells circulating around in their blood. They'll be more prone to form a thrombus that doesn't go away. And it just gradually, slowly gets bigger over the course of years to decades. And eventually little pieces break off, go to the brain, and they have strokes. I see that all day long every day. Um, So one other thing I forgot to mention when we were talking about hypertension is when you trash this ascending thoracic aorta, now you're going to have predominantly systolic hypertension and increased systolic blood flow. That means the left ventricle of the heart has to contract for a more prolonged amount of time. When it's contracting a prolonged amount of time, you have less time for filling of the myocardial arteries of the heart. So what I mean by that is, it's during diastole, cardiac relaxation, when you get backflow into the coronary arteries. And so if you're contracted a prolonged amount of time, there's less time to fill those coronaries. Plus, Prolonged contraction of the myocardium, you don't fill the myocardium while it's contracting because it it compresses those vessels. So it has to be relaxed. That's when the blood gets in. So what I'm saying is it's a double screw job. More time in contraction, thus the demand for more blood with simultaneous your reduction in the amount of available blood because you're contracted too much. So you're double screwing yourself um, with with this ongoing worsening loss of elastic fibers in the ascending thoracic aorta. And again, I'm making the point is that because I also see people... They're aging slowly, aging slowly. And then they sort of hit a tipping point and they just crash and burn. And so you don't want that reversible disease. You don't want to get close to that tipping point. And the way you do it is get your act together with this nutrition, you know, diet, exercise, toxicology, sleep, sense of purpose, all that.
0: Yes, there's a lot to it, but it's it's easy once you just start doing it because then you feel better. I think a lot of people who are thinking about adopting a lifestyle, they just don't feel good, so then, then it takes effort to do something. But once you start, it doesn't take very long to, when, after you change your food, that you can actually start to get more motivation and, and more energy, and, and your brain fog lifts, and then it just gets a lot easier to do. So true or false, endothelial cells are the life jacket of the arteries, and they produce nitric oxide true or false screen warriors okay dr rogers
2: yes it's true and i think it's funny because that's like a phrase that dr esselston likes to use the life jack of the artery and actually you know i think esselston is great and i actually went out to the cleveland clinic and met with him and i talked to him quite a bit and um when i was there before i knew him while well, i was there at one of his, his his uh courses all day long lectures and i'm like well what about this what about this what he goes well we'll talk later I goes, we'll talk later we'll talk later and so afterwards, we had a long conversation. He goes, Pete, he goes, you can't go into all this detail with the audience. He says, you're going to confuse them. They don't need to know all this detail. And I'm kind of laughing because he's got a classic surgeon mentality. People make fun of surgeons that all they care about is results, and they don't really give a rat's tail about all the details. And that's the opposite of internal medicine uh, doctorate. They tend to be interested in all these details and go blah, 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 and they'll talk on and on for an hour about all these nuance that maybe doesn't even matter at all, okay? And so... The funny thing was Esselstyn's like, look, if they understand nitric oxide, they'll stick with the diet and they're going to do well. And that's really the only thing that matters if they don't get that, they won't go with the diet and it won't work. So he goes, I just try to make sure they get that because he always goes nitric oxide, nitric oxide. So I joke that he's like a one trick pony and he's making a good point and he has fantastic results and he deserves a Nobel Prize. I'll never get a Nobel Prize because... They don't want to draw attention to the fact that he cured coronary artery disease. It's big business, okay? When you when you pop a stent in, you're getting thirty thousand to fifty thousand dollars for that hospital, okay? Versus you do open heart surgery, coronary artery bypass, guys. We call it a cabbage coronary artery bypass guy. That um, that's one hundred twenty, hundred fifty thousand dollars for the hospital with the cardiac rehab, the prolonged hospital stay, the ventilator, everything that goes with it, ICU. So what I'm saying is, teaching somebody about the the low fat vegan diet. There's no money in that. At the most, you know. You can have them come for a couple of days or something and, and teach them, and you're not going to get hardly anything. And that's also why I'll just say it quite frankly I'm a Christian, and I believe you have to have Christian ethics. You don't have to be a Christian, but you have to have Christian ethics where you value the individual. You have to have a sense of humans are created in the image of God. They're partly divine, part beast. Therefore, I will do what is right by them. They deserve that I do right by them. Because if you don't have that, who is going to give up $150,000 unless they have a sense that? The value of this individual is so high that it outweighs my own personal financial concern. And in my opinion, I think that's why medicine is such a big mess and a disaster nowadays is because you don't get money for helping a person. You get money for selling them drugs or for operating on them. All right. So I believe you have to have this ethical foundation in order to produce Uh, practice optimal medicine. And people try to pretend, oh, we've got, you know, the highest technology and all this stuff. And what I'm trying to say is it's the simple stuff that makes people the healthiest for most of the problems. Yes, there are times when you need a fancy transplant surgery that's all well and great. But what I see within the internal workings of medicine on a daily basis is most people, if you said to me, 60-year-old guy, that to me means 60 year old guy with coronary artery disease. He's got lots of atherosclerosis, he's hypertensive, he's diabetic and he's got a whole bunch of other problems. I don't even need to look in the chart. It is a safe assumption for an American patient that he has all these things. And so what I'm saying is, you're never going to have great healthy population and great medical care unless you have that. And I realize it's probably not even gonna go that way. Well, that's why we've got the internet. And I actually think, you know, you can learn more as a health coach in a week of studying these lectures and videos then you could learn in four years of college, four years of medical school, four years of residency, because they're never going to teach them this stuff. They're only going to learn drugs and surgery, drugs and surgery, because that's where the money is.
0: Yeah, and that's why we're so grateful for all that you do and contribute to this lifestyle and to this way of life, because we need to know. we We are our only advocates. We can't if if we get into a car accident or something like that, then there's definitely a place for the emergency room and the, and these doctors that they can do some really wonderful things when, when it's needed. But as far as these lifestyle diseases, like what we're talking about today, it's up to us and it's up to us to get the right information. And even if we get the right information and we present it to our conventional doctor, he may not agree because as you say, they, they don't have that information presented to them. In the yeah,
2: I would say that, you know, conventional doctors, they want the patients to do well. But the reality is they're ignorant. But they've been trained to think that conventional medicine is the real standard and everything else is BS. All this nutrition is BS. Supplements is BS. Chiropractic is BS. Everything except them is BS. That's how they're trained to think. So they come through all their training and they think that they're the hot stuff and they they treat the patients with all the drugs follow all the guidelines but it takes about 10 15 years and they're like how come nobody gets better what's the cure rate for diabetes with pills zero what's the cure rate for hypertension with a pill zero never okay what's the cure rate for cholesterol with a pill zero no one ever is cured zero cure rate so i mean it's, it's a joke can you imagine you had a sports team you name whatever sport the team always loses We always lose. We're the best. Okay, look at the vegan community. They cure hypertension all day long, diabetes all day long, obesity all day long, routinely, okay? So the doctors start becoming a little sad. You see a lot of doctors look kind of sad. They're they're sad because their clinic is working their tail off, trying to get more money out of them. Okay, and imagine if a doctor tried to practice plant-based medicine in a a typical medicine clinic. What would happen? There'd be somebody who runs that clinic and they go, you know, Bill, the other doctors are seeing 30 patients a day. You're only seeing 10 patients a day. You talk too much. You're talking too damn much. You're not pulling your weight. You're going to have to start seeing 30 patients a day or we're going to have to let you go, okay? So he has to practice the same as everybody else, which is, okay, your cholesterol's high, take this pill. Your pressure is high, take this pill. Because if they don't do that, they're going to get fired. Plus, you're in the safe zone. As long as you follow the guidelines, it doesn't matter what happened to the patient. The patient, in a sense, is irrelevant, okay? If you follow the guidelines, if the patient dies tomorrow, it doesn't matter. You can't be sued, okay? But if you don't follow the guidelines... Let's say you tell the patient to follow the vegan diet. They don't follow the diet. They have a coronary event or something. They go, hey, why didn't you prescribe this statin? Why didn't you prescribe this antihypertension? You have not followed the standard of care that's unacceptable. So they they kind of have to stay safe for themselves and to make money and to get done fast. They have to go with conventional. It's just designed that way. Um, and that's why, you know, it can't fix itself. And it never will because the, the way it works is in the big, Ivy League places, the fancy medical centers, the docs need to get research and published if they're going to get promoted. Okay. So they have to do what the money wants. And the big money comes from big pharma. Big pharma says prescribe these drugs. Okay. And if they piss off big pharma, they write in their study, all these drugs doesn't work. Well, bye-bye no more grants for that, for that researcher. Okay. So they have to play ball with big pharma and they have to play ball with the insurance companies. This is how things are built. They'll pay you to prescribe a drug. They'll pay you to do a surgery, a procedure, a colonoscopy, whatever. They won't pay you to have a conversation and teach. So, you're not going to get paid. And, and they're the ones running the show. They got the money. They got the purse strings. So that's just how it's going to be. And so I don't think it's, I don't see it ever changing. I think the only thing is this alternative option of going on the internet and listening to, you know, the persons who got experience with it, you know, explaining things.
0: Right. And you're not trying to sell, sell a pr- procedure or a drug. So You're just doing the research and trying to get the word out there. And that's what we need to do. Just advocate for ourselves and our loved ones and get the information. Okay, so here's another true or false. Potassium and magnesium found in vegetables and fruits are vasodilators which keep arteries open for optimal blood flow. Okay, Dr. Rogers.
2: Yeah, that's the thing, too, is our ancestors probably ate about 25 times as much potassium as sodium, but we do the opposite. We eat about 10 to 15 times, as much, 15 times as much potassium as sodium. We're messing everything up. And then this gets into the physiology of the individual cell. An individual cell, like let's say this is a cell, the circle here, it has to maintain ionic gradients across its plasma membrane, okay? And it'll typically have a negative internal charge, let's say negative 65 millivolts, and there'll be a gradient of... Uh, sodium outside the cell to inside the cell. They'll typically be 10 times higher outside the cell than inside the cell. And that's what a battery is, you know, separation of charge across a membrane, okay? And then the flow of current is the movement of ions, charged particles. Sodium is plus one, potassium is plus one, magnesium is plus two. Okay, but the relevance is when you eat the wrong diet, meaning this typical modern high sodium diet, low in potassium diet, you mess up your each all of your cellular ionic gradients. As a matter of fact, the net result is, you, you dissipate those gradients. You'll tend to accumulate sodium inside the cell. When you eat that sodium, your body has to, man- has to balance all of its cations, positively charged ions. So when you eat more sodium, you'll actually urinate out more of your potassium. So you start being overloaded with sodium. And then what happens is you dissipate your plasma membrane gradient where you lose that 10 to 1 concentration. And once you lose that, you're less able to couple secondary pumps to that gradient. So what I'm not getting at. The main thing to pump out calcium is something called a knockout exchanger, the sodium-calcium exchanger. Natrium means calcium in Latin, okay? So it's going to be N-A. That's the symbol for it. Potassium is collium, okay? That's why you all see the K for potassium, the symbol of it. Okay, so when you dissipate that gradient, you're less able to pump calcium out of the cell. You accumulate calcium inside your vascular smooth muscle cells in your arteries. So what am I trying to say is... Calcium's like a light switch on and off, okay? And when you have high calcium, your vascular smooth muscle in the lining of your arteries, it stays high, so that muscle stays contracted. It stays clamped down. So people eating these high-sodium diets, they're staying clamped down because the high dietary sodium leads to high intracellular cytoplasm concentration of calcium. Um, So it's not a smart thing to do. And once you contract the vascular smooth muscle cell, it'll stay contracted for a prolonged amount of time. So they'll spend, you know, their whole day in a contracted phase of being hypertensive. You know, it's not good.
0: Yes. That's very good information that you're sharing. And we definitely appreciate it. It's a lot, lot to it. And like I said earlier, you we were talking about the negative charges around the red blood cells and in the endothelial lining. And here again, you know, and I, I did this on a presentation once where I showed uh, a plant with roots and it went down into the soil and then i showed a digestive tract. and really if you look at the digestive tract and, and the root of a plant the digestive tract is like a root of a plant turned inside out so for the root of the plant you have all these little hair like roots villas coming out and they're absorbing things from the soil magnesium or whatever is in there and in the digestive tract those the hair's like structures are on the inside and they are trying to absorb these nutrients that are vital to our existence and and that is something that we're we're lacking is is the magnesium and the potassium and it's not not that we we're lacking a pill though right
2: yeah yeah it's, you know we're made to survive on the diet from nature and you go to all these blue zones where you know like dan buettner's national geographic blue zones All these people, other than the Seventh-day Adventists in Los Angeles, they live in, you know, some backward remote place. They don't have all the fancy pills or fancy supplements or any of this fancy stuff. They're sort of very, you know, sort of primitive rural and stuff. Uh, And that's what makes people healthy. That's what we're designed for. And it has to be that way or humans wouldn't have survived this long on this planet. Uh, So, and magnesium, by the way, is two plus on its charge. And magnesium has a job. It holds together ATPs. So let's say you have an ATP molecule, all right, and you got these phosphates. Uh, You got these two phosphates right here, and they both have these negative charges on them. These phosphates want to bounce off of the ATP. ATP is adenosine triphosphate. It's the energy currency of the cell. An ATP molecule is like a $20 bill. So what I'm trying to say is the magnesium, imagine it's like this blue thing here. It's positive charge holds holds these... um, Holds these phosphates next to each other so they don't pop off. And you have to have that to run all your ATP uh, based ion pumps in your cell. You got to have that magnesium. It's almost like holding two horses so they don't buck away. And you have to do that, otherwise, they'll split away. So, and why does this matter? Because what are most Americans deficient in? You know, all these people, they don't know any better, all these ignoramuses. What about your good fats? You got to get your protein. I hope I'm not low in calcium. I don't want to be osteoporotic. No, that's all BS. What are people low in? They're low in magnesium. They're low in potassium. They're low in fiber and they're low in nitrates. Why? Because they don't eat plants. It all comes from plants. Okay. And the same thing with all the black people. Okay. Everybody says, oh, black people. Here's what I learned in medical and residency black people just got lots of hypertension. There's nothing you could do. Must be genetic. They're salt sensitive. Maybe it's from the climate. Nobody knows. Okay bs donison paper 1929 in lancet journal 1800 consecutive admissions to a hospital in kenya where they a plant-based diet at that time how many hypertensives zero okay and they go well it's got to be the sodium then they checked in american populations okay and what they found was they actually weren't eating that much more sodium in fact less even than these other populations what was their problem they weren't eating any potassium they're eating all this processed food meat and oils and next to like hardly any potassium that's why they're hypertensive Okay, so. That's one of the big things they could do, anybody could do, to uh, to fix their hypertension. And it's pretty relevant because I see tons of them die from it, okay? You walk into a dialysis unit, you'll see tons and tons of hypertension-related disease putting people in kidney failure on dialysis, which is you no know, fun. You sit there for five hours, three times a week, getting dialyzed, and you feel lousy the whole rest of the day. So that's the big secret, potassium. And by the way, you know, who's the guy who did the most work to figure this out? It was a guy by the name of uh, Richard Moore, MD, PhD. He devoted his whole life to researching hypertension and the ion pumps. He wrote a fantastic book called The High Blood Pressure Solution. It's a masterpiece. It's one of my all-time top, let's say, my top 40 uh, medical books I've ever read in my life. It's it's a fantastic book.
0: Yeah, and just to let you know, Green Warriors, oftentimes people think, oh, potassium, so I just need to eat a lot of bananas. That's not the case. Much of the plant food is rich in potassium and much of the plant food has more potassium than bananas, Uh, sweet potatoes and spinach and watermelon, uh, beans, legumes, tomato paste, butternut squash. They they all have potassium in them. Swiss chard, beets even. We were talking about that before we went on air and pomegranate. So there's a lot of places to get potassium, and so it's not just for bananas. so don't don't confuse that. Okay, here's another one that uh, is interesting. True or false, Green Warriors. Overtreated hypertension can result in a stroke. Okay, Dr. Rogers.
2: Yeah, so that's the thing, too. Like I said, you want to get your act together the sooner the better because... The longer you wait around, the more irreversible disease you have and the more fragile your body gets and the more vulnerable you are to a major complication. So basically, the main point of having your your blood pressure is to get it to the top of your head because you got to get brains right underneath your skull there. All right. So what happens, though, is people then have a tendency to try to treat, treat hypertension based on guidelines. Excuse me. They take a pill that'll drop your pressure. Well, guess what? You drop that pressure, you're dropping pressure to your brain. Okay. You don't want your pressure systolic to over 160 because you might you know pop a blood vessel have an intracranial bleed but i can tell you i hardly ever see a big intracranial bleed i only see a big intracranial bleed you know once every three months or something four months what well, i sometimes see little hemorrhagic lacuna infarctions i'll see those like every other day i see microbleeds uh hypertension related microbleeds yeah i see those every day okay but what am i getting at um think about it if you over treat your hypertension and drop your pressure so low you're not getting that much blood up to the top of your brain. And that's where I see all the silent strokes. Okay. Because the deep white matter, paraventricular white matter, it doesn't have good collateral blood flow. There's the strides come off the middle cerebral artery going up. And then off the MCA coming up over the convexities, there's a the penetrating arteries, convexity arteries. And the deep white matter, so deep in the center of the brain, it doesn't have very good blood supply. We're not, n- humans didn't, Traditionally, get atherosclerosis. Okay, so what I'm saying is if you overtreat this hypertension, say, oh, we've got to get your pressure down below 130. Well, guess what? If it was 170 the last couple of months and now you drop it that fast, that low, you might stroke out some of that brain. I see, I see hundreds of uh, silent strokes every day. And a silent stroke might not even have any symptomatic manifestations. They might not have any problems moving their arms or legs. But what happens is the more of these that people have, the more cognitively slow they get, and the more debilitated they become over time, the more likely they are to become demented. Uh, So yes, overtreated hypertension, I think is a very common cause of stroke. So you got to be careful about it. You know, you don't want to, I'm not going to get into all the details of treating hypertension right at this moment. That's a big subject. But what I'm saying is the smart move is fix as much of the problem as you can with diet, lifestyle, exercise. And then if you have to take a pill after that, take your pill. But what the average dummy does is they just, Treat it from the start with pills and don't do anything different. Eat the same diet, have the same lifestyle, sleep, exercise patterns. That's not a smart thing to do.
0: Right. And what we should say here is that if anyone who is watching and they're thinking about adopting a plant-based lifestyle without the sugar, oil, and salt, if you are on this hypertension medication, you really should be careful, right? Couldn't you become dangerously over-medicated? Oh, yeah. You got to talk.
2: You got to excuse me. Yeah, you gotta talk to your doctor to titrate all your medicines. If you're on if you got high blood pressure, diabetes, because once you go plant-based, you usually don't need those medicines very much and you're gonna be overtreating yourself. You're gonna drop your pressure too low, you're gonna pass out or something. Okay. The same thing with your blood glucose. You are not gonna need probably as much medicine. You're gonna become hypoglycemic. It's dangerous. Also could affect if you're on blood thinners. If you're on coumadin for example, eating all these plant foods could change you know your vitamin K status so to speak and you'll you'll need to change your doses. So work with your doctor, titrate your dosages a little more gradual if you're already taking pills for hypertension, diabetes, or anticoagulation.
0: Yeah, but that's how effective it is. So it, it you'll, you would see results very quickly. Within days, you might see a change in, in your level. So just go ahead and, and work with your doctor. Okay. So let's see. I think, well, Sherry Ann had asked about potassium-rich foods, because, and that's what, why I was going over earlier. And I don't know if she was here when we talked about it. She wanted to know what food should we be eating rich in potassium? Yeah, as
2: long as you eat plants, the way I think of it is P for plants, P for potassium. There's tons of potassium in plant foods. Some of them, there's a hundred times more potassium than sodium. We're made to our kidneys to excrete. Uh, Also, if you're in kidney failure, almost on dialysis, then you got to be careful because you might not be able to excrete potassium so effectively. But for other persons with intact kidneys, we excrete it just fine. We're designed to excrete it. We're actually designed to hang on to sodium. And so the point I'm saying is, You'll be amazed. Start looking at the labels of your food or just go on the computer and type in how much potassium in the common foods you eat. And you'll see that it's it's way high. Like it's pretty typical to be 100 times more than. Uh, and as long as you keep it at least 10 to 1, 10 times more potassium than uh, sodium, uh, you'll probably have pretty good uh, blood pressure. I mean, again, if you've already got a lot of baseline damage from chronic hypertension, it's going to take more effort to improve your blood pressure. But what I'm saying is if you eat plant-based, and you should be 100% plant-based. You'll be, you'll be getting plenty of potassium.
0: Right. And that's the beauty of this lifestyle. If you just eat a variety of plants and, you, and, and you're and you eliminating the added salt because the plants have naturally have sodium in them. So you're not going to be without salt. You'll just have the amount that your body needs. And if you do that, you won't have to be counting calories or measuring portions or weighing things or wondering, am I getting enough protein? Am I getting enough potassium? It's all just going to balance out in your body as long as you eat these Foods that are that are plant-based, fruits and vegetables, and beans and and uh, rice and things like that. You'll you'll be fine.
2: Okay, when it comes to health, you basically have two choices. If you go down the the standard American path, what most people do, you keep eating meat and processed food. You're basically you're screwed. Okay, you're gonna get drugged like crazy because there's drugs for everything. And let's say you have a fat fifty-five year old walks into a doc's office, okay? They're gonna take a pill for hypertension, a pill for high cholesterol. They're gonna have a pill for their impotence, a pill for their pre-diabetes. Um, and it's just gonna keep on accumulating. And they're gonna to have to keep coming back for follow-ups, check their lab, check for complications of a pill, take a pill for the complication of a pill. And eventually that's not gonna work. And they're gonna go for procedures. You know, they're gonna have polyps in their colon. They're gonna go chop off the polyp. They're gonna end up getting stented and cabbage, et cetera, et cetera. Die young, broke, okay? All right. Now here's what the smart path is. Become a low-fat, low-sodium vegan. Also learn about avoiding toxins. That's kind of a talk for another day, toxicology. And what's going to happen? Your Johnson's going to work a lot longer, most likely. And, you know, I'm 60 years old. I don't take any pills. Uh, My cognition is just fine. My physical strength and endurance are just fine. And so are other low-fat vegans typically. And you probably live to around 90 on average. Um, depending on how early you start, you know, if you get your act together when you're 50, you'll be better off if you had gotten your act together when you were 30, but you know, the sooner the better. Okay, here's two different patterns of atherosclerosis. A typical Westerner eating the high-fat diets, a lot of saturated fat in animal foods, they'll tend to get atherosclerosis at the carotid artery bifurcation. Here's the common carotid artery, here's the external carotid goes to the face, here's the internal carotid artery goes to the brain. The blood bounces off this meeting divider here and you'll tend to form atherosclerotic plaques right here on this far wall. Persons who are hypertensive, and this is like common, let's say, in the Japanese 1970s, they were eating tons of sodium, like 12 grams a day or more. We really only need to be eating like, you know, 200 to 500. Um, Anyways, um, they would get into cranial atherosclerosis from their hypertension. So that's sometimes called the Asian pattern of atherosclerosis. This is sometimes called the Western pattern of atherosclerosis. All right, well, this is something I kind of joke about, you know, the normal distribution, like an IQ distribution uh, for people's health. And this is a typical American population. They're fat and sick, completely ignorant. You ask them what you eat, and they're like, oh, I eat a lot of chicken and fish and olive oil. Real healthy. The reason everybody in my family has atherosclerosis is just genetic. Yeah, right. It's because you all eat the same thing. Here's a typical doctor. Typical doctors think that a healthy diet means eating the Mediterranean diet, which is also quite ignorant because they haven't studied it. They just copied what they heard somebody else say. And if you think about the Mediterranean diet, it's so obviously stupid it's not even funny. They'll eat chicken. They'll eat fish they eat other fat foods, they'll eat olive oil, they alcohol. It almost doesn't forbid practically anything. It's, it's a chump diet. Okay, anyways, here's the health aristocrats, the top 1% or even less than that, low-fat, low-sodium vegans. and That's where you want to be. And you have to accept the fact that there's going to be a little bit of peer pressure, especially in the beginning, because people think it's strange. You know, why are you eating that way? I don't know anyone who eats that way. Well, the advantage is you're healthy. And I, I made the joke about the the bulls already. Okay, so here's the dietary pattern. Standard American diet, high especially in saturated fat, moderately in sodium, tons of myocardial infarction, most common cause of death. It's also very high in cancer. You know, the same things that cause myocardial infarction, they also increase the risk of cancer. And because ischemia, lack of blood, lack of oxygen delivery to tissue, can push somebody over into a Warburg effect, whereby a cell is transformed into functioning like an anaerobic bacteria. Okay, um, what else? The East Asian diet, like let's say Japan, Korea, China, where they ate tons of rice, but they were also eating tons of sodium typically. Um, they would get a lot of hypertension, hypertension-related strokes. They did some good things in terms of compensating with a lot of fruits and vegetables, so they were relatively healthy, all things considered. The healthiest version of that East Asian pattern would be like the Okinawans who were eating tons of sweet potatoes back in the day when they were healthy. Okay, the South Asian diet, like in India, you know, again, a lot of them are pretty thin, but a lot of them are not that healthy. They got a lot of coronary artery disease. And I think it's because they eat way too much fried food. I have a lot of Indian doctor friends, and I've talked to them about this in some detail. So that's the big secret of why they're not as healthy as they look because of all that fried food. So if they ought to, that's the biggest thing they got to do They also eat some saturated fat in the form of dairy like that ghee butter. Okay. But anyways, what's the point? Low fat, low sodium vegan, you have a low risk of all this stuff. That's what you want to do. And again, you talk to the typical ignorant person and they give you an attitude. Oh, I don't want to miss out on the pleasure in life. I love my ice cream. I love steak, all this stuff. You're trying to take all my fun away from me, my happiness away from me. And when I tell them, you know, you can do what you want. But the proper attitude is an attitude of gratitude. Instead of going into this inevitable disaster, you have a way to escape the common diseases of chronic uh Sickness and aging in the Western type of society. And so you should have an attitude of gratitude. Thank God. All I got to do is eat this diet and I don't have to plug up my Johnson, my coronaries, my carotids. What a great deal. I'll do it. I'll do it. Thank you. Okay, if you want to, the other thing too is a lot of people say, well, I hear contradictory information, you know, so-and-so doctor on the internet says that paleo, keto, carnivore, low carb is the best. And that guy looks really good. That lady looks really good. I want to look like them. So average people, I think a lot of times don't pay much attention to the scientific details of what's being talked about. And, you know, big food, they know that they want to keep their business. These companies have billion dollar budgets. Okay. So they get these good looking people, usually about 40 years of age and the public watches them. They go, gee, that guy, that gal looks good. I want to look like them. I'm going to do paleo keto. And what I'm saying is the way to figure out these contradictions is look at epidemiology, look at these populations. So in Northern Mexico, you got this population called Tarahumara. It means like fleet runner, Sierra Madre mountains and Copper Canyon specifically. And they were, by the way, combined with the Pima population in the past. Mexican-American War was 1848. The Pima got absorbed into Arizona, and they now eat the standard American diet, okay? Both of them used to be real healthy. I've seen pictures of the Pima back in the 1800s and the Tadahumara together. They look the same. Now, though, the the Tadahumara, they can run 100 miles in two days. They've kept their old ways. They eat lots of corn. They'll eat some beans. They eat local greens. They eat squash. Versus the uh, Pima, they're like some of the sickest people in the world. Obesity off the charts, diabetes, off, diabetes off the charts, hypertension, gallstones. They're a health disaster. OK, and it's always the same story. So here's a Taromara. Every guy in town, not just a fast guy running 100 miles in two days. Uh, Nathan Pritikin patterned his diet after the Mara. He was so impressed by them. And a lot of famous people have gone out and visited him and run with Ultra Ultramarathoners, for example. Ruth Hydrits went out and ran with them. OK, a guy wrote a book about him. OK, I think one of the books was called Born to Run or something. Um, and then the other thing about them is, uh, let's see what else. Here's the PIMA. The PIMA are just like typical Westerners. Open heart surgery, gallbladder surgery, appendectomy, sigmoid resection for diverticulitis, baloney amputation for diabetes, you know, train wrecks. Oops. Okay. And it's the same, it's the same wherever you go, all these Oh, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to stay on it. Okay, I think let me go back. Oh, all I got to do is hit my arrows. Okay, so here it is with the Yanomamo. They live in the Amazon jungle on the border of Venezuela and Brazil. They eat their old plant, plant-based diet. These plant-based populations, they don't ever get hypertensive. They got the same blood pressure as a teenager. They got the same blood pressure when they're in their uh, 70s, okay? And there's a whole bunch of, oh I could show you Finland, I could show you Karelia when they lo- drop the fat content in their diet, I could show you what happened in Norway, I could show you the Papua New Guinea, I could show you the migration patterns of the Japanese to Hawaii becoming more Americanized, and then even more so when they move to California, and then eventually they pick up all the diets of the Americanized population if they follow their diet. It's not genetic. Hardly anything is genetic. I mean, yeah, genetic diseases do happen, but they're relatively uncommon diabetes, hypertension, obesity, they're off the charts all day long every day. Every every hospital in the Western world has like a river of fat hypertensive diabetics that flow in with all the related complications. Okay, here's normal blood, and here's your plasma, and usually it's translucent. You could see through it. The more fat you eat, the more opaque it gets, the less you can see through it, the thicker that blood is. All right, Uh, here's the red blood cells, about uh, seven microns, capillaries about five microns. So this is what I meant by they have to deform, fold back on themselves. They look like little Pac-Man creatures as they travel through the vessel in this setting here. When you eat a high-fat diet, it sticks the red blood cells together. So the French word for stack of coins is rouleau. So you have a rouleau formation. So now you're almost like pushing the submarine sandwich through your capillaries, and pressure has to go up in order to pump through that. Okay. Here is the zeta potential, so this is a red blood cell and this is a negative charge around the outer surface of the red blood cell. The other red blood cell also has a negative charge, so they repel each other, which is good, you don't want them sticking together, versus there are bridging molecules, molecules that have adequate size and a positive charge on their outer surface, and they will stick these red blood cells together, so these are called bridging molecules. The classic one is LDL cholesterol, which is very routinely elevated in western populations, So That's why it's the main risk factor for atherosclerosis because people eat high fat diets. Um, Fibrinogen is a clotting protein. It's an acute phase reactant, meaning it's released by the liver during stress that will also stick red blood cells together. So that's another one of the reasons. In addition to vasoconstriction, narrowing of the arteries, uh, one also gets an increase in clotting proteins like fibrinogen. So stress increases your risk of acute clot formation, acute myocardial infarction, for example. Elevated uric acid, which can happen from eating a lot of meat. It can also happen from eating a lot of high-fructose corn syrup with processed food. Um, IgM antibodies, like in an acute infection, they also have a positive charge, can stick red blood cells together. So, you know, when you get a patient with an acute severe infection, they're at increased risk to clot off a a blood vessel in the site of the infection, but even systemically, they have a myocardial infarction, for example. The higher the LDL cholesterol, the higher the blood viscosity, meaning the thicker the blood. Okay, so here's a little bit nicer drawing from a journal article. The negative charge in the outer surface of the red blood cell, that is called the zeta potential. And this has been well known for a long time in the literature because they have to know this in order to bank blood, okay, to store it. But it does not get talked to medical students or or residents, clinical physicians. You know, I've never in my whole life ever met a a medical student or, or any physician who knows about this. They only know about it when I teach them okay, here's the example with the IgM antibody, sort of the acute infection antibody. You're not going kind to of likely to get it with IgG unless they're really, really high levels in the blood, perhaps like with multiple myeloma or something. But again, these are positively charged and they can stick the red blood cells together. This was getting back to the whole Ansel Keys data. There was a cardiologist like in uh, Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania, Peter Quo, and he showed in the 1950s his cardiac patients, the ones that had known coronary uh, angina, you know, uh, dyspnea, shortness of breath on exertion, dyspnea on exertion. You feed them a high fat meal, he would check their blood lipids every 30 minutes. And he found when feeding them a meal high in saturated fat from about three hours to about seven hours, they, would, they were very common to have angina, chest pain related to ischemia, lack of blood flow due to the high fat meals. And it totally peaked right when the fat was highest in the blood. Then everybody said, okay, Ansel Keys, he's right about saturated fat. We want to try to move our diets away from saturated fat. Saturated fat mostly means animal fat okay, it's uh, solid at room temperature, for example. So they said, we're going to go with unsaturated fat, these omega-6 cooking oils. So they thought that that might be the way to go in the 1960s. And then there was another group, Meyer Friedman, Ray Rosenman. They were ophthalmologists. They put a microscope looking at the small vessels in the eye. They fed them this diet now with a, they fed them a meal very high in omega-6 cooking oils. And they found that the blood stayed sludged for an even much more prolonged amount of time than it did with saturated fat. As a matter of fact, their research assistants were pissed off. They wanted to go home because they would start these things at like, let's say eight o'clock in the morning and they would still have high blood into the evening and they wanted to go home. So it was a problem. So the point I'm saying is these uh, PUFAs, polyunsaturated fatty acids are, are not the answer to coronary artery disease. Okay, this is just more of the same. It's kind of like a duplicate slide. This is showing some work here. This was done by Roy Swank. He's a neurologist from Canada who later went to work in Oregon. And he partnered up with Dr. John McDougal, famous nutrition doctor. McDougal actually has a video of showing what happens when you eat a high female. Roy Swank actually made the video, but McDougal has a copy of it. And basically it's only about 50 seconds long. And when you see the red blood cells initially flowing very nicely, but then what happens when um, the red blood cells stick together, they form these clumps, you know, rouleau formation you can call it like stack of coins or you can call it blood sludge. And, it's a rather startling thing. Once you've seen that, you know, you've all probably had a time when you went to the greasy spoon and you felt sluggish afterwards. Roy Swank photographed these patterns. You can see the red blood cells all sticking together. You don't want that because it's going to decrease oxygen glucose delivery to the brain. Typically, it'll decrease it, um, decrease PO2 delivery to the brain about 15 to 20 percent. Can you be even more than that? Swank's measured as high as 30 percent in the brain of hamsters. But they think in humans, it's probably 15 to 20 percent drop in oxygen delivery to the tissues. So if you, if you have somebody who's already compromised from chronic hypertension, chronic diabetes, the last thing you want to do is superimpose upon it at a high-fat meal and further drop your oxygen and glucose delivery. And you couple that with a stimulant in your brain, caffeine, sleep deprivation, etc. Now you've ramped up the metabolic rate in that neuron while you're simultaneously dropping its oxygen and glucose delivery. Not good. Okay, why do they have a zeta potential? They got negatively charged molecules in their outer surface. One of them is a sialic acid, which is very much like glucose and a carboxylic acid. So there's a negative charge right there, a deprotonated carboxylic acid. These are called sialic acids. They become relevant for some other diseases too, so it's worth knowing about them. You don't need to know the details. Just know it's like a glucose with a carboxylic acid, and there's a negative charge on it. That's worth knowing. Okay, what else? You also get cholesterol sulfates, and again, that has a negative charge on it. Whenever you hear sulfate, think of a negative charge. All right, and that's part of how, let's say, the endothelial glycocalyx membrane forms a negative charge to repel the red blood cells as they move along the blood vessels so they don't stick to the walls of the artery, okay? Um, so, like I was saying, the endothelium has a glycocalyx. Again, these are like the little uh, trees on a hill, if you will, and they've got their negative charge. The red blood cell has this negative charge, and they all repel each other. These uh, little red and yellow things here are the cholesterol sulfates. Um, so, what I'm trying to say is all of these things are running based on charges, If you had two people standing up right next to each other on a corner and a car ran by and it it crashed into one of the persons and they died, okay, and they're laying dead on the ground, they would still have the same molecules, the same chemistry, if you will, as the live person, but all the electricity would be gone. And so it's electricity in the body, so to speak, from all these charge relationships that generate life. And a lot of times that's forgotten about. And we can show that's true. You look at a brain, what do you lose? You look at an EEG, electroencephalogram. You look at a heart, what do you look at? An EKG, electrocardiogram. You measure the activity of the cell, you check its, its plasma membrane voltage potential. You check the activity of a mitochondria. What does it go by? It goes by its inner mitochondrial membrane uh, gradient. Okay. So, anyways, here's a heparin, here's a um, endothelial cell, the lining cells of an artery, and they produce a lot of things to prevent clotting. The most important one here is nitric oxide. Some of it goes into the arterial lumen and it interacts with the platelets to prevent them from clotting. Some of it diffuses. It's a gas, actually. Some of it diffuses to the vascular smooth muscle, and it prevents them from contracting. So this production of nitric oxide is the most important thing you can know about an endothelial cell. So it does all the good stuff. Stops clotting, gets the muscle to relax, lowers blood pressure. Okay, that's what you want. There's more to it than that, but that's all that matters for our purposes. The one thing I'll mention is heparin sulfate is an antithrombotic, negatively charged molecule, part of the endothelial Uh, Zeta potential as well. That's going to come up again too. So we'll talk about that a little more. Okay, here's heparin sulfate, by the way. Tons of negative charge. Look at all these sulfates. Negative charge, negative charge everywhere. So that gives you a pretty powerful Zeta potential to repel RBCs so they don't stick together. Okay, here's a little bit more detailed drawing. You'll typically have like a heparin sulfate here. And you'll then have a sialic acid also negatively charged like we spoke about earlier. The carboxylic acid attached to a glucose molecule, so to speak. That's partly of its immune uh, identity card, if you will, for the immune system to recognize it having the characteristic sialic acids on its surface. Okay. And then you're also going to have cholesterol sulfate. So those are your negative charges, um, on your, uh, Zeta potentials. All right. Cholesterol sulfate, sialic acids, and heparin sulfates or glycosaminoglycans, meaning alternating, uh, saccharide units. But you, we don't need to get into all that detail, but that's how cells maintain their structure and keep it intact with these charge relationships. Okay. All right. If you have a uh, blood, uh, you got a lot, most of the thickness of your blood is due to your red blood cells. You know, like more than 99% of the cells in your blood, they're red blood cells. Okay. Yeah. You got white blood cells. The white blood cells tend to be a little bit bigger, but they are, there's so few of them that the blood thickness is due to the red blood cells. And this is also why women live longer. Women with their menstruation, it's like a therapeutic phlebotomy every month in a Western society. So, It lowers her hematocrit so their blood becomes thinner. They're pumping, you know, more of a water-like solution rather than a milkshake-like solution than a man is, okay? So that's protective. In addition, when red blood cells first come out of the bone marrow, they're more flexible, more deformable. So because she's menstruated, she has to replace those red blood cells. She's got more young red blood cells in her blood, and she's got a lower hematocrit. That's why women tend to have a lower blood pressure, and they live longer. And this is also the reason why when a woman gets a hysterectomy at a young age, like most common thing I see is for fibroids, a woman in her 20s or early 30s, they dramatically increase the risk of hypertension. And without even realizing it, typically, they'll dramatically increase the risk of coronary artery disease and of dementia. Whenever I look at a demented brain and it's a female between the ages of 45, let's say to 65, I first of all say, well, she a drug addict. Drug addicts got all kinds of problems. Or alcoholic or something, you know, she'll pickle her brain but. You show me a female with a demented brain and there's no known reason. I can tell you most of the time I look up her surgical history and she had a hysterectomy at a young age. Male Clinic did a study on over 2,000 women with hysterectomies at young ages before 35. They got tons of vascular complications. And I think it's because a guy if a guy, you know, by the time a guy's in his late 30s, early 40s, he's heard about some other guy going impotent. He's heard about some other guy having a heart attack or his old man having that kind of problem. He's a little worried about it. So he's starting to think about his cholesterol and his diet. Whereas a woman, she thinks the whole thing's a you know, big joke. It's just a problem that men have because you almost never hear about a premenopausal woman uh, having coronary artery disease to a significant extent. So she may might be oblivious to worrying so much about her diet or getting her blood pressure checked. But if she's had that uh, hysterectomy, she's, she's at risk, okay? Oops, let me stay back in my presenting. All right, the spleen is like the graveyard for red blood cells. Typically, they live about 120 days. Uh, What happens is, uh, like I showed a capillary, you know, in the rest of the body is about five microns. The spleen has three micron capillaries. So the red blood cell has to be quite deformable. And as we were saying earlier, red blood cells become less deformable with age. They just can't get through those splenic capillaries. They lyse and then the macrophages, the immune system cells sort of reabsorb the iron, for example. Um, If somebody gets a splenectomy surgically has the spleen removed, then their blood viscosity goes up and they're more prone to these vascular problems. Okay, this is just showing normal blood flow should be laminar. Laminar means that the red blood cells are in the center, so I got red color for the red blood cells. The white blood cells will be right next to them, and then the plasma on the outer part of this parabolic uh, blood velocity profile. And so the the plasma that's running adjacent, adjacent to the glycocalyx of the endothelial cells will be located right here. Okay, and typically the endothelial cells are spindle shaped and they're lined along the long axis of blood flow. And this is all senses normal. They've got mechanoreceptors that sense the blood flowing past them. And as long as that blood is flowing past them, they keep making nitric oxide, everything is good. Everything is copacetic. They're happy. Okay, now here's what happens with hypertension. Well, first of all, normally, here's the parabolic laminar blood profile in a straight vessel. It hits the median divider between the external carotid, which goes up to the face, internal carotid artery goes up to the brain. And when it bounces off this median divider, if it's only a small amount, that's normal. But when you have excessive turbulent flow from bouncing off of this median divider and you get an excessive amount of these retrograde, they're called eddy currents, that confuses the endothelial cells in this segment. And they will start to shed their antithrombotic glycocalyx with the heparin sulfate on it, and they'll start to express prothrombotic molecules like VCAM, vascular cell adhesion molecule. And the red blood cells, white blood cells will start to adhere to that and form a clot. And you'll end up for decades even in a steady state between clot formation, clot removal, clot formation, clot removal. And the older the person gets, the less able they are to clear these clots. And so this is an atherosclerotic plaque. Atherosclerosis is a blood clot. And it becomes organized in the sense that, you know, it starts to gradually become infiltrated by white blood cells and they try to reabsorb it like reabsorbing a hematoma. And so, again, what I'm saying is you want to get your act together the sooner the better so this thing can just be reabsorbed and won't keep reforming. Uh, but that's where it always happens. It always happens at the same spot. You just know it there. and You look at it, it's a blood clot, okay? You can't differentiate that from blood clot. Getting back to my point that atherosclerosis is a blood clot. And you can also describe it as an organizing hematoma, meaning organizing just means that as the white blood cells infiltrate it and try to reabsorb it, it has a characteristic pattern and steps that it goes through. First of all, some of the macrophages will take up lipid. That's called a lipid core. That could be reversed. That could be reabsorbed. You'll have a necrotic core. Some of the macrophages will absorb some of the dead tissue. And try to recycle it, let's say through lysosomes, okay? That could be reabsorbed. The part that becomes calcified, you can't reabsorb that. That's permanent for the rest of their life, but it usually doesn't cause any problem. They also have fibrous tissue, you know, fibrotic tissue, a lot of collagen, scar tissue, if you will. Uh, When it's cellular, it's partially reabsorbable. The more acellular it becomes, the more irreversible and chronic it is, okay? But the question arises how much of this can be reversed? Well, the sooner you get to it, the better. But you can reverse it more than you think. And the reason is that, like I said, you can reverse this lipid core, necrotic core, the partly cellular fibrotic tissue, the acute clot, all of that can be reversed. Plus, the endothelial cell itself will start to produce more um, nitric oxide. So these are actually endothelial precursor cells. They actually float around in the blood, and they become endothelial cells. They will attach to the atherosclerotic clot, and they'll form a surface over it. Anyways, they will, they will function better and release more nitric oxide and cause more vasodilation of the vessel. High-fat diets and high-sodium diets inhibit nitric oxide production. So you stop eating the fat, you stop eating the sodium, and these endothelial cells can produce more nitric oxide, more vasodilator. So you can get a pretty rapid improvement in blood flow. And then as the plaque itself shrinks a bit, then you'll have less narrowing, less stenosis. That will also increase flow. Because if you look at the equation for flow, it's over R to the fourth, the radius to the fourth. So just a tiny increase in diameter can cause a big increase in flow. Okay, here's the great uh, Caldwell Esselstyn book, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease. It's a masterpiece. Like I said, the guy deserves a Nobel Prize, but he'll never get it because they don't want this becoming widespread knowledge amongst the public. Um, and I think Esselstyn's for real. I went out and visited him. And uh, I studied him. I've seen a lot of other people get, you know, the same type of results when they get their patients to follow that diet. Okay. Um, and he said a couple of good things. Like he said, he said, you looked around the world the epidemiology and basically the plant-based communities don't get coronary artery disease. Okay. Um, and he emphasizes nitric oxide. His, his latest thing, the last couple of years, he's emphasizing, he recommends a really bad, uh, severe coronary artery disease patients, who you know, previous myocardial infarction, train wrecks. He wants them eating green vegetables six times a day because that provides nitrates, which get made into nitric oxide, okay, Um, sunshine also produces a little nitric oxide, oh, here's the story on uh, nitrates and nitric oxide, Nathan Bryan is sort of the most famous nitric oxide expert in the world, who talks about this a lot, the gist of it being here, you eat the greens, and you got nitrate, NO3, the bacteria on the back of the tongue converted to, this should be nitrite, that should be the letter I here, I kind of screwed up, I should have put a letter I here for nitrite, that's NO2, Okay, then when it goes into the stomach, the stomach acid helps convert it to nitric oxide, NO, so one oxygen. All right, and then a couple things relevant, too, is you don't want to be using, you know, F-minus toothpaste, drinking F-minus water, F-minus mouthwash in the point. Well, especially the toothpaste and the mouthwash, okay, because they kill the bacteria in the back of the tongue, so you can't get this first convergence step, and you lose the ability to uh, optimally convert this into nitrite. And that can be a significant amount. Nathan Bryan says that if we get older, it can be up to 50% of our systemic nitric oxide. That's a lot. Okay. I think some of that's based on a Western population, though. If they're a plant-eating population, you'll get less of this problem. On the other hand, those, those sort of indigenous populations, <laughs> they're not using this stuff either. And the PPIs, proton pump inhibitors, can also uh, decrease the amount of this you get because they decrease the stomach acid. And basically, the traditional way of looking at the vegan diet is you just follow the vegan diet, eat your greens, Avoid your fat and, you know, everybody lives happily ever after. The Johnson keeps working, working. You can still keep playing kissy face all these years into your, into your golden years. Um, There's more to it than that though. I think people need to be aware of toxicology and stuff too. We'll talk about that some other time, but it's nice to avoid all those atherosclerosis problems because that's the main thing sort of dragging most people down. You show me a demented brain. I don't even have to look at the films. I can tell you 95% of the time the patient's diabetic, they're hypertensive, they got poor dentition, and they've had at least one cataract surgery. Um, all right, a little bit about fats. A fatty acid, what that means is you've got a chain of carbons and a carboxylic acid at the other end, okay? So the carbons are nonpolar, meaning that they're soluble in fat. They're not soluble in water. But the polar end here, the carboxylic acid will often be deprotonated. But anyways, it has a charge on it. It's polar. It is soluble in water, that little part. But in general, fat is not. So this is why you can store all this fat in your body, you know, tons and tons of pounds and tons and tons of calories. It's a a non-hydrated form of energy storage. Versus in your liver, all your glycogen, for every molecule of glycogen, you got like three molecules of water. And what that means is you really can't store glycogen long-term because you, you you would weigh you know 10,000 pounds if you had to store all your calories in glycogen. I mean, if you look at a CAT scan of the abdomen, you'll see the liver is this giant thing. Okay, so that's for storing Um, And this, by the way, is a, a fat is called amphiphilic in the sense that it's like an amphibian, can live on land and water. This is the, the polar part of one type, if you will, aqueous sol- solubility. And this is the the carbon chain, which is lipid solubility, okay, and detergents are like that, emulsifiers are like that. that, that becomes relevant, this idea of fatty acids being a little bit like detergents, that's going to come up again, emulsifiers are relevant because they're in all the processed foods, and these things cause leaky gut, you don't want them, That's a bad thing. Okay, um, main types of fat, saturated fat has no double bonds, MUFA, monounsaturated fatty acid, that's mono as in one double bond, olive oil is about 70% MUFA, but it's also got about 14% sat fat, and it's also got um, a significant amount of uh, PUFA, polyunsaturated fat, including omega-6s. Okay, here's a carboxylic end. Okay, that's also called the delta end. You'll see a triangle for that sometimes. Uh, and then you're going to count. Here's the methyl end. And we usually count from the methyl end. Okay, so this is six carbons from the methyl end. So this is a little, let's see, let's go one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, there's a double bond. So this is an omega-6 fat. Okay, and then you'll often see one carbon skipped, and then it'll be the ninth carbon. So this would be, you know, like a 6-9 fat. So anyways, the relevance here, though, is the hydrogen on the carbon in between these two is not held tightly. It's very loose grip on its electrons. So this can get plucked off very easily. And that's when they go rancid. The re- reaction is called uh, lipid peroxidation. And the name of this carbon, uh, the bridge carbon, is called methylene bridge. And so that's another reason why the more double bonds you have on a fat, the more prone it is to having these hydrogens plucked off and generating a, a chain reaction, of free radical reactions, okay? Um, this methyl N is also called the omega N. So when you say an omega-3 fat, that would be a double bond here. An omega-6 fat, that's a double bond at the 6 position. And, you know, it's good to know that terminology comes up all the time. And this is what I meant about the hydrogen getting plucked off, and then you have a free radical, meaning an electron that's unpaired in the outer orbital, and you can get an oxygen to bind to that, and that's called a peroxide. So this is starting out with a fat. And then having a peroxide attitude, that's lipid peroxidation, and that can cause chain reactions and damage tissue. So this is another problem with these fats. Okay, here's a little bit on the overall scoop on diabetes. We're not going to go into diabetes too much, but everybody, you know, says diabetes, sugar disease, diabetes, sugar disease. Diabetes is primarily a fat disease, okay? That's an important point, and nobody knows that, Okay. The doctors don't know that, okay? I can tell you, I read all these biochemistry articles on diabetes, I really wanted to understand it. So I asked some of my internal medicine friends, like, who are the best diabetes doctors, okay? And so I went and met with the best diabetes doctors, the heads of their departments, the, the chiefs who teach all their um, residents. And I started asking them, what do you think of the Sweeney paper? Like, oh, I haven't read that. What do you think of the Rabinowitz paper? Oh, I haven't read that. The Hemsworth paper, I haven't read that. What do you think of the Shelman paper? Oh, I haven't read that. What do you think of the uh, Roy Taylor paper? Okay. What do you think of the work of Michael Browning? They hadn't read any of the papers. They know all the drugs, but they don't know the the pathophysiology of the disease. And that's why they don't know the diet to treat it. Okay. And that's why I meant that you would be wise to learn how to treat yourself because the average patient always tells me it's under control, it's under control, it's under control. They give me this sort of arrogant attitude like they got their act together and who am I to ask them a question. Okay. Okay, so anyways, you accumulate fat, first of all, you know, obviously in your subcutaneous tissue, your visceral tissues, but then it gets into your skeletal muscle. Once it accumulates in your skeletal muscle, that's the earliest detectable finding of insulin resistance. Then you'll get uh, post-meal hyperglycemia, post-prandial it's called, is post-meal uh, blood glucose. Okay, so that's bad, but once you accumulate the, and your blood glucose stays high and that extra glucose will partially accumulate in the liver and cause a fatty liver. And so once you got a fatty liver, then the liver loses its ability to accurately sense the blood glucose level, and it'll keep on running gluconeogenesis, releasing glucose into the blood more than it should. Because the liver's job at night is to maintain your blood glucose level for your brain. Your your liver is like the servant of your brain, and its job is to make sure the brain always has enough blood glucose. All right. So anyways, fatty liver to me means means diabetes, okay? Diabetes of the liver. Roy Taylor even defines diabetes as uh, fat accumulation in the liver. Okay, and and like I'm saying, I see fatty liver all day long every day. It's so common. If let's say I was given an ultrasound requisition and it said the patient has elevated LFTs, I don't even need to scan the patient. You could send the patient home, say skip the ultrasound, the patient has fatty liver. That would be a safe decision. Okay, that would be accurate about 99% of the time. Um, And by the way, I've seen many thousands of those. Okay, Okay. so then what happens is you then start eventually accumulating fat in the pancreas, and that's thought to be toxic to the pancreatic beta cells, the ones that produce uh, insulin. And I can tell you, you look at a CAT scan of a diabetic patient, it's pretty routine to see a fatty atrophic pancreas, and those are the ones that are insulin-dependent. They've destroyed their pancreas beta cells, and now they're kind of screwed. They're on insulin the rest of their life. Okay, and these are all just the complications of diabetes. Okay, here's an interesting paper, and what they showed in this paper was that when, even when they tried... Inhibiting the fatty acid transporters, they could not stop fat from getting into the skeletal muscle cells. And the point was, the conclusion they came through was the fatty acids were doing what's called a flip-flop maneuver. They would, they would form a contact with the phospholipids in the plasma membrane. Then they would become protonated and thus lose their charge. And that would enable them to flip into the outer leaflet of the plasma membrane of the skeletal muscle cell. And then they could do a flip-flop maneuver and then be in the inner leaflet of the plasma membrane and then move into the cytoplasm. So you could not block it by the, the protein membrane transporter because it's just diffusing right through the membrane. The, and it diffuses through the membrane in proportion to the uh, blood concentration. So obviously the smart thing is reduce the blood concentration by eating a low-fat diet, okay? You're not going to win that game unless you do that. Okay, here's this guy by the name of Michael Brownlee. This guy is a genius, man. This is the best paper ever written on history of diabetes. I've read tons and tons of them. This is like an AO, academic orgasm. It's just magnificent, okay? And he basically figured out that the main mechanism of insulin resistance was the effect of high-fat meals, especially saturated fat, like on complex three, causing reversible electron transport. And when you start reversing it, you create all these secondary disasters. Because basically, it's like a traffic jam. You're going to back up electron transport in the mitochondria. That's going to back up Krebs cycle in the mitochondrial matrix. That's going to back up glycolysis in the cytoplasm of the cell. Um, so anyways, and also then you start dropping electrons off electron transport. Instead of them running all the way through their course to complex four, where they combine with oxygen as they're supposed to. Oxygen is the normal ultimate electron acceptor. They end up dropping down into the matrix, and they'll bind with oxygen prematurely a single electron, rather than it takes four electrons to convert oxygen to water. Here, a single electron adds on to an existing oxygen, and that forms what's called a superoxide anion. It's bad. Now, don't get me wrong. A little bit of this happens normally, and and the, the mitochondria can handle it just fine. But when you get excessive amounts, it activates all these secondary reaction pathways that you don't want. Okay, by the way, here's this paper. And if you go to PubMed, all you can see is the title of the paper by Michael Brownlee. You can't even get an abstract. No abstract available. And this is where most people look up scientific papers at PubMed. So what I'm trying to say is I've seen this happen for tons of subjects because I looked up all kinds of, you know, uh, medical stuff. Is that when they don't want the public to know about something, like let's say they don't want you to know about F- in your water, you'll, you'll run into this nonstop. No abstract available. It's, it's BS, okay? Luckily, though, if you go to diabetesjournals.org. Um, Here's the paper right here. You can get the whole paper, the entire paper for free. If you want to see the lecture, Michael Brownlee actually has a lecture. you got to sign into American Diabetes Association. But still, like I said, this guy's a genius. This is the best paper ever written on diabetes. It was like I almost wanted to cry when I read it. I'm like, wow, all this study I've done on diabetes, and it's so hard to make sense out of everything. And that guy figured everything out, backwards and forwards, and he made his case airtight by doing all kinds of experiments to confirm it. Okay, now here's another genius guy. This is Gerald Shellman right here. And by the way, that last paper won the Banting Award of 2004. Uh, Michael Brownlee is the best diabetes researcher in the entire world. Okay, Gerald Shellman won that award in 2018. Here's his Banting lecture. And um, this is a brilliant lecture. And he, he describes what he calls the ectopic fat theory. And especially relevant was he was at Yale at that time is they use nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy to confirm, once again, the earliest finding detectable of insulin resistance was the accumulation of fat inside of skeletal muscle, okay? Because normally after you eat a meal, the majority of that glucose should be going to the skeletal muscle to be stored as glycogen, and when you have insulin resistance, that glucose can't get into the muscle, so it stays in the blood, which maintains persistent uh, elevated blood glucose level, and a lot of it goes to the liver, causes fatty liver, but it also goes all over the body, and gets into cells where it really shouldn't be going, cells that can't control the rate of glucose uptake. So here's a normal situation. You eat some food that's got a lot of glucose in it, right? The pancreas senses it, releases insulin. The insulin acts positively by, in the muscle, and you store a lot of that glucose in the skeletal muscle. The majority of your postprandial uh, glucose stored in the muscle is glycogen. However, if this muscle is resisting, has insulin resistance, and it won't take up that glucose, it stays in the blood, and it ends up where it shouldn't be. It'll end up in the liver causing fatty liver. It'll end up, you know, in endothelial cells causing uh, endothelial, you can describe it as a microvasculopathy. In the kidneys, diabetic nephropathy. In the uh, peripheral nerves, diabetic neuropathy, okay? In the eyes, diabetic retinopathy. Okay, so that's from the Gerald Shulman. You could you could watch those lectures. Uh, Gerald Shulman's lectures; it's available on YouTube. Just type in his name, Gerald Shulman, Banting Award 2018. You can watch his lecture. It's a masterpiece. It's brilliant. Those are like the three best. Oh, I forgot to put um, another guy. I thought I had one more paper in here, or maybe I got it coming up. The Ray Taylor one. Ray Taylor's lecture is magnificent too. He won the Banting Award in 2012. These guys are like the best diabetes researchers in the whole world. Okay, this is the money on diabetes. I'm telling you, you could search through thousands of articles. Before you ever find what I just showed you, if you ever find it, I'm showing you the best stuff, okay? Um, Capillary basement membrane, uh, here it is, okay? And by the way, you say to yourself, well, how can I find all this good information? The reason is I ask myself a question. What causes diabetes? What causes insulin resistance? How can I find out the answer to that question? What typically happens when you've got research funded by industry is they don't care so much about you know what the truth is what they care about is how can we make a drug and make money and if your research interest is always focused on making money you usually don't end up finding anything interesting but when you study something open-ended i just want to know how this works you'll find a lot of good stuff okay so here's a problem with diabetes here's a normal here's a normal capillary by the way red blood cells are passing through The yellow is the endothelial basement membrane, These spindle shaped cells in the background here with a spindle shaped nucleus. Those are the endothelial cells lining the artery in its long axis direction of flow. Okay, here's the skeletal muscle cells, the green cells. Okay, and here's the red blood cells delivering oxygen. These little blue circles are molecules of oxygen. And here's a neuron in your brain. It takes this oxygen, uses it to make energy. All right, now here's the problem. With diabetes, you get a thickened capillary basement membrane, so it's harder to deliver oxygen to this neuron. With hypertension, you get hypertrophy of these skeletal muscles, plus you also get uh, thickening of the collagen, the connective tissue in here, that's going to drop. Notice I got more blue circles up here than down here. It's going to make it harder to deliver oxygen to this neuron, and it gets worse. You make a high sodium diet. you're going to vasoconstrict this, narrow its diameter, you eat a high fat diet you're going to have blobs of fat all over these red blood cells you're making it harder and harder to get uh blood supply to this neuron and then simultaneously let's say you know a genius person smokes a cigarette and then has uh and drinks some caffeinated coffee or soda pop or something now they've ramped up the metabolic rate in that neuron while they simultaneously from their chronic bad habits are dropping, dropping the oxygen delivery that metabolic rate gets too high relative to the neuron's metabolic then if the metabolic rate is too high relative to the level of oxygen and glucose delivery, that neuron will die. And by the way, that whole theory is actually called the Peter Rogers MD theory of neurovascular uncoupling, okay? That you have to match metabolic rate uh, to oxygen. Glucose delivery has to be coupled to uh, metabolic rate. And the more things you have producing a bigger gap between those two metabolic rate versus oxygen and glucose delivery, the more likely that neuron is just gonna die. It goes into apoptosis. Program cell death where it recycles itself. It's a disaster. Okay, hemoglobin A1c glycates the, neuro, glycates the red blood cell, less oxygen delivery. Here's something kind of cool is that when a red blood cell passes through uh, a capillary, as it gives off oxygen, that will change the shape of the red blood cell. It causes it to release an ATP, which then binds with the endothelial cell. Here, the blue ones are endothelial cell. And you get a wave of vasodilatation traveling proximally to couple the amount of oxygen delivery Um, to what the tissue just deep to this uh, blood vessel needs. However, if you glycate this red blood cell, it's less able to uh, sense these changes in amount of oxygen uh, binding percent. It's less able to release ATP. So you start screwing up your neurovascular uh, uh, coupling, making it harder to get adequate oxygen to these tissues. And as people get older, they have more of these problems, especially if they have these bad habits. And when their brain cells don't get enough oxygen, uh, they can die. Okay, if there's a small difference, you'll compensate probably for it, maybe have a little dysfunction, brain fog. But if it's a prolonged, more significant gap, brain cells, you just start losing them. They start dying. And you end up demented. Okay, here's a guy named Roy Taylor. He won the Bantine Award 2012, and he did some work with Gerald Sheldman over at Yale with that nuclear magnetic spectroscopy to measure the intramyocellular fat. Okay, so anyways, here's one of the things he showed. He showed that here's a normal, here's a liver and a typical fatty liver patient. He's got a color-coded yellow. So that's a fatty liver. And these are real fat patients. I think it was about 20 pounds that they lost. This liver is about 36% fat by content. And once they lost about 20 pounds, the first spot they lost the fat from was from the liver. And once they dropped the liver fat, they no longer were insulin resistant and they had a dramatic improvement in their symptoms. Okay, so that's rather impressive. Because you look, see what a tremendous difference you have in your uh, liver uh, from here with all the yellow fat versus over here but you haven't really changed the thickness of your subcutaneous fat too much and then their blood glucose instead of having high blood glucose their blood glucose came down you know towards the normal range dramatically and it happened all you know the the longer they keep their act together the better but it can happen very quickly within a couple days get this dramatic improvement and Nathan Pritikin used to joke, he says, in America, everybody's diabetic after dinner. And what he meant by that is if you check a, a healthy person's uh, blood glucose parameters, let's say, or glucose tolerance test in the morning before they've eaten breakfast, they probably would test okay. But after they've had a high-fat lunch and a high-fat dinner, uh, vast, many of them, a real high percentage of them would test positive for prediabetes or diabetes, which was kind of amusing. Okay, uh, this is just showing estrogen in our body is excreted by the liver. It's conjugated to a molecule, a glucuronic acid, like we were talking about earlier. Glucuronic acid is a glucose with a carboxylic acid attached to it. And that little tag, that conjugation, it's excreted into the bile, which is where also your bile salts go for digesting fats. But anyways, if you have, there's really two types of gut flora. There's a meat flora and processed food flora because there's lack of fiber. And then there's plant gut flora. When you've got all the fiber from plants, that's the good one. So if you eat a meat and processed food diet predominantly, you're going to have bad bacteria in your colon. And when I say bad bacteria, what I mean is they got more of this enzyme glucuronidase. And the glucuronidase means they cut, they cleave off this glucuronic acid from the estrogen. What happens is then that estrogen gets reabsorbed in the body, so estrogen levels go up. Estrogen is a fat storage hormone. Like when a woman's pregnant, her estrogen levels go up because they want her to gain weight because that fat storage can provide energy that the baby might need. So what I'm saying is meat and processed food eaters have higher estrogen levels. Well, guess what? Higher estrogen levels mean they've got higher amounts of breast cancer, higher amount of uterine fibroids. The prostate is like the male equivalent of the uterus. So they're going to have more prostate enlargement, BPH, benign prostatic hypertrophy with difficulty yearning. They'll get lots lower urinary tract uh, symptoms. And they get more prostate cancer. It's all bad. You don't want it. And the guy can get moobs, man boobs, gynecomastia, Okay, here's another paper by Swank showing that not only does the the fat stick the red blood cells together, it causes a partial opening up of the blood-brain barrier. It's bad, okay? And one of the things that's not well known is the fiber as it protects the gut from leaky gut. The fiber actually, some of it, it's it's short-chain fatty acids. They go up to the brain's blood-brain barrier, and they help maintain the tight junctions on the blood-brain barrier as well. And you'll find if you start studying this, most of the things that cause leaky gut, they also cause leaky brain, leaky blood-brain barrier. That's bad because you want precise ionic gradients to make all your neurons function optimally. What I'm saying is this can predispose you to brain fog, decrease cognitive performance. And Roy Swank was figuring out a lot of this stuff. And he came to the conclusion that's why sat fat in particular he felt was the main cause of multiple sclerosis was for this reason. It was opening up the blood-brain barrier. Other people will say it's because of the, you know, leaky gut uh, autoantibodies with molecular cross-reactivity to the myelin. Okay, but anyways, I'm I'm just showing you this, and the chylomicrons were causing the blood sludge as well. So it's LDL as well as chylomicrons, okay? So chylomicrons happen earlier in the postprandial phase. All right, now here's some healthy person. Here's their their initial artery. FMD means flow-mediated dilation, all right? They'll put a tourniquet up on their arm. They'll release the tourniquet, and they'll see how much does the artery vasodilate to quickly make up for the oxygen glucose delivery deficit that occurred when the tourniquet was up. Okay, so the point is a healthy person that's been fasting, they can dramatically increase their arterial diameter. If they just ate a meal, if it's a high fat meal, they're really not gonna be that good at dilating their artery once you release the tourniquet. And if they have baseline atherosclerosis and they eat a high fat meal, they're pretty screwed. They can only get a 3% diameter here in comparison with a 5% diameter in this. Ideally, you should have a 7% diameter. So what am I saying? What I'm saying is if you got baseline atherosclerosis and you superimpose on that a high fat meal, high sodium meal, you're screwing yourself because you're not going to be able to deliver a blood flow to your heart muscle that well. And if you superimpose on that increased metabolic demand, here we're talking about heart, before I was talking about the brain, due to psychological stress, due to caffeine, due to tobacco, you will have increased the metabolic demand for oxygen and glucose in the muscle while simultaneously dropping the ability to meet that demand. And you're putting yourself at risk for a heart attack, okay? Okay, this is just showing kind of the same thing here. Going into a little more detail about heart attacks. So a high-fat meal has lots of bad effects on blood flow. And it has bad effects on the brain. It has bad effects on the blood-brain barrier. I agree with Nathan Pritikin when he said fat is bad. It's much worse than people realize. The typical American public ignoramus is brainwashed by the phrase, good fats, good fats. You got to get your good fats. You got to get your good fats. (laughs) Yeah, right. Famous last words for chumps. Okay. So here's showing that immune system cells like your neutrophils, they will make uh, what is called hyperchlorous acid. They're going to use myeloperoxidase. Myeloperoxidase is secreted in increased amounts when a person eats a high-fat meal. And it's part of this process, how they respond to infections. Okay, but the problem is when you eat a high-fat meal, here's your neutrophil in your blood. It becomes activated. It releases MPO, myeloperoxidase, which has a positive charge on it. That positive charge interacts with the negatively charged endothelial glycocalyx. Here's the paper where this comes from, by the way. Okay, and it causes the endothelial glycocalyx to collapse down. Normally it should be high, sticking up way above these vascular cell adhesion molecules. When the endothelial glycocalyx collapses down, these binding molecules will now allow the neutrophils, for example, to bind to them. Okay. It can also start having red blood cells stick more to the endothelium. And now you can start forming clots along your endothelial cells, ECS for endothelial cell, and you'll potentially even progress further down this pathway. Um, where, you'll, where you'll open up the tight junctions and you, and you get neutrophils passing into the subendothelial space. This is all bad. You don't want it. So, what I'm trying to say is a high-fat meal, it's like inflammation. It, it does so many bad things. It sticks your red blood cells together. So now you get thick blood, high-viscosity blood. And it also causes inflammation in your endothelium. It also inhibits endothelial nitric oxide, so you get decreased nitric oxide production. Um, this is just showing more of the same. Here's a normal... And glycocalyx these big high glycosaminoglycans with all their negative charges, you know, from their heparin sulfates, their sialic acids, their cholesterol sulfates. That's what you want. This repels RBCs. But when you activate your neutrophils because of the high fat meal, and then they send out all this MPO, myeloperoxidase, it collapses down all this glycocalyx, and now these adhesion molecules become exposed secondarily, and that can lead to clot formation. its It's all bad, okay? And they're just showing you can reverse the process by giving heparin. Heparin will have a negative charge, and it'll break the positive charges away from your glycocalyx to try to restore it. Okay, so anyway, so the point of that was to show high-fat meal has many bad effects on blood flow. And I, like I said earlier, it also contributes to leaky gut and contributes, contributes to leaky blood-brain barrier. It also distorts the outer shape of the red blood cells, and it can cause some of them to become ac- acanthocytes, meaning like a spike on them. Instead of being this round, almost discoid morphology, also, um, a relatively focal spike is called this means like a thorn um, that'll happen, and you'll even get a echinocytes A means circumferential uh, spikes coming out of them. These abnormally shaped red blood cells, due to the high-fat meal, are more prone to clotting. So this is another way that it makes the blood more prothrombotic. You don't want that. Bloods clot. Blood clotting inside of a vessel is what causes a stroke and a heart attack. It's all bad. Also, when you eat high-fat meal you get what's called premature externalization of phosphatidylserine. Phosphatidylserine is a phospholipid that begins in the inner leaflet of the red blood cell plasma membrane. Plasma membrane means the outer membrane of the cell. And it over time, as the red blood cell ages, the phosphatidylserine gradually flips to the outer layer. And what I'm saying is when you eat a high-fat meal and you do that repeatedly, you get more rapid flipping of the phosphatidylserine to the outer leaflet. So it's, it's called phosphatidylserine externalization. So you accelerate the rate at which that occurs when you're eating high-fat meals, and that's bad. It makes the red blood cells more stiff, less deformable, so pressure has to go up to pump these stiff cells through the system. It also makes them more prone to aggregating and binding with receptors on your uh, endothelial cells. That's all bad, okay? And the RAGE receptor means receptor for advanced glycation end products. So these red cells are getting glycated as well. It's all taking you in a negative direction that you don't want to go. All right, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, coronary artery disease just because it's relevant here, some special points. Here's the ascending thoracic or, like we said, during diastole, the relaxation part of the heart phase. You'll fill the left main coronary artery, and then you've got blood going into the circumflex, CX, LAD, left anterior descending. And then you got these perforating branches that go into the heart muscle itself, and these are the intramuscular branches or the myocardial branches. This is called the microvasculature. And these guys only fill during cardiac relaxation because when the heart muscle is contracted, it squeezes them. You won't get blood traveling through them. So that's why you need good diastolic flow because that's when you fill these arteries to the heart. The big arteries on the outer surface are called the epicardial. And epi means outside, so that's on the outer surface of the heart where all the fat is. And you could, you could put stents in these big proximal arteries, but you can't stent way distal. You can't stent these little branches here. You could bypass, you know, from the aorta to the distal left end here descending where it's still reasonable diameter and epicardial. But you can't dent these little guys. You can't do nothing about them other than fix them with diet and lifestyle. Okay, and the one of the points I want to make is there's something called coronary syndrome X. I abbreviated here CSX. Who gets this? Especially women. This is also um, common post-infectious. I'm not going to go into all the details of it, but post-viral infection, you will have a tendency to increase the risk of syndro- coronary syndrome X with these microclots, and they can occlude a significant amount of the microvasculature of the heart. Not good, okay? And you cannot treat this with a stent or a bypass. So the smart move is don't be making your blood thick with these high-fat diets. Don't be making your blood thick constricted with the vasoconstricting sodium. Okay, um, so this is an important point. You want you want to know about this. I uh, Trust me, I guarantee you're going to hear about this a lot. Microvascular angina, it's called microvascular dysfunction or coronary syndrome X. It's a, and it can cause, it can, it can progress a woman all the way to, to cardiac death from myocardial infarction, from congestive heart failure. So it's a big deal. You need to know about this. All right. Um, and the other thing I would say, well, I'm, I'm not going to get into normal variants, but some people have got, instead of having a bifurcation, they have a trifurcation right here, like a medius, ramus intermedius, and they're going to have smaller vessels, more difficult to stent. Again, the only smart move remember what William Roberts said it's always diffuse. there is no such thing as single vessel disease when you look at these patients at autopsies atherosclerosis is to a similar extent in all the branches of the coronaries so what's the only thing that gets everywhere a healthy diet and lifestyle that's the smart move that's the smart money okay this is what I call the spartan vegan diet this is my diet spartan because it's cheap it's simple and also because I'm a former wrestler so it kind of fits totally with my perspective You got these lifestyle things that are important. You know, we talked about those at other times. Starches are where the majority of your calories should be coming from. Potatoes, sweet potatoes, and rice. All these things only have 1% fat. The lower the percent of calories from fat, the skinnier the population is. So potatoes, sweet potatoes, and rice, all 1% fat. Tons of people live long, healthy lives eating those uh, starches. Starch means a plant food that's basically a polymer of glucose wrapped in fiber, which is exactly what you want because uh, the starch – the fiber makes it low caloric density. It stretches your stomach right away. That's early satisfaction of hunger. Then it takes time for your intestinal enzymes to peel away the fiber from the, the the starch, the glucose itself, that gets slowly absorbed across your gut into your blood. So you get prolonged satisfaction of hunger. Probably the most prolonged satisfaction of hunger comes from beans. So if you're eating a one-meal-a-day diet, OMAD diet, uh, beans are a good way to have prolonged satisfaction of hunger. I don't even need to eat beans, and I'm fine. Your, uh, blood gly- your, your liver glycogen can handle 24 hours easy. It can handle 48 hours. It tends to start having a little bit of difficulty and moving towards, uh, ketone bodies after 48 hours, but 24 hours is a walk in the park. Uh, I do it all the time. Eat one meal a day just for the convenience of it save time. Uh, oatmeal is a starch. Quinoa is a starch. Um, okay. Fruits, fruits are good. They're a little bit of a, a challenge in the sense that you, uh, They're harder to store. They're more expensive. Frozen are good. Um, I wouldn't eat uh, the big avocado. They're they're tending to use preservatives on the outer surface of that that I don't like. I would actually call that forbidden fruit. Um, Veggies are good. You get your greens because you get your nitrates. Also, magnesium is right in the center of chlorophyll. So you'll get your magnesium from there as well. The only supplement I take personally is I take methylcobalamin B12. I like methylcobalamin. I don't want to take anything with cyano on the front of it, okay, if you know what that is. All right, here's the plate from a Spartan vegan diet. You know, this is just basically a low fat, low sodium vegan diet. Something kind of like this. Okay, here's your starch, most of your calories. Here's your fruits. And then here's your, uh, your greens. There's not that many calories in greens. I'm eating them, like I said, for the nitrates, the magnesium, for example. And filter your water. You want to filter your water. That's a topic for another day, but you want to do that. At the very least, you want a carbon filter. Ideally, I like reverse osmosis, whole house carbon filter um better to live in a place that don't put f minus in your water if you got a choice and overall you end up living like adam and eve but you want to keep your indoor heating and plumbing that's what we were sort of designed to eat and it goes right back to genesis 129 then god said behold i've given you every plant yielding seed which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree which has fruit and it shall be food for you we're designed to eat plants it's just a fact uh so anyways hope that was helpful
0: Yes, it definitely was helpful, and I really appreciate that. Everybody clicked like for Dr. Rogers and his fabulous presentation. You gave a lot of information, and hopefully people may be able to start some conversations with their medical doctors and get them curious about this, because there's a lot more to learn. So Sherri ann had a couple of questions, actually. She said, I'm wondering what the doctor thinks about eating raw garlic every day to keep your blood flowing easily. Thank
2: you. Well, raw garlic tastes good. And a lot of people like to put it into the rice or their beans as a flavorant. And I would say, go ahead. I've heard good things about it. I haven't studied it in that much detail. I don't know how big a difference it really makes. It's usually a small quantity of the food, but I, I've only heard positive, but I don't really know that much about it. So I don't know how much of an effect, I doubt it's going to have much of an effect, but who knows, maybe it's got some benefit.
0: Right. And Oftentimes, some of my clients will ask me questions like this or some of my green warriors may ask questions. And what we need to also say is that you can't like do drive through and then eat some garlic and hope that that will cancel it out. Right. And I'm not saying directing this to you, Sherry, but I'm saying that anybody that's watching, it's not just I eat this one superfood and then I can eat whatever else I want and it'll cancel everything out. Right. This would be something that we might add on. And then Sherry also had another question. She said, my husband has fatty liver based on an ultrasound, but his liver enzymes are normal. Is this unusual?
2: Yeah. Well, one of the things you run into is when you judge, the way you judge fatty liver on an ultrasound is normally the echogenicity of the liver should be the same as the kidney. So when they say fatty liver on an ultrasound, what they're saying is the liver is more echogenic than the kidney. Excuse me. So. It could be mild, moderate, or severe. A lot of times radiologists do not specifically grade the fatty liver. They'll just typically read it out as liver with diffuse hyperagenicity, which is suggestive of fatty liver. Okay, but if you had a previous ultrasound, you might want to compare it. Are you improving or getting worse? Is it mild, moderate, or severe fatty liver? Um, And then you might want to know what your hemoglobin A1C is which is sort of a marker of overall blood glucose for the last couple of months and see what that is. So you want, you would want that, let's say below 5.4, you know, you start getting over 5.4, you're pre-diabetic over 6.5, you're diabetic. So, um, you might want to know that that would probably be worth knowing, uh, cause you don't know how bad his fatty liver is. And I would also ask myself the question is, um, am I, am I, am I eating or living in a way that I'm more likely to get fatty liver? Are you eating a lot of, you know, high fructose corn syrup? Um, are you eating a high fat diet? Are you eating animal foods? Are you eating oil in your food? Why do you have that? And, you know, is it really real? Because what I'm saying is it might not even be real. It might be that the difference is so subtle. It's not a real fatty liver. But I, I would definitely look into it a little further because to me, the word fatty liver is a warning sign that you're heading into than diabetes. So you want to figure out what's going on.
0: Thank you for that. Okay. Uh, the Sky Warrior said, what does Dr. Rogers think about coronary calcium score? So that's a procedure. Well,
2: to me, this is kind of like a typical patient thing. What I mean by that is I don't need to check. Like I said, William Roberts is correct. If you take a herbivore and you feed him a high fat diet, you've got atherosclerosis. It's not a mystery. Average patient, like, wants to be sure. I've talked to people about coronary artery disease for, like, like almost an hour, okay? And their eyes are glazing over. They don't seem to be registering anything I'm saying to them. And then they go get a calcium CT score. And they go, oh, my God, I've got calcium in my coronaries. Oh, my God, I could have a heart attack. And they're all freaked out. And it's like, dude, I could tell you already. I don't need to see any tests. All I have to know is you ate a Western diet the last 30 years. You've got coronary artery disease. There's no mystery about it. So why, why radiate yourself? And I don't know exactly how many. Let's say it's in the ballpark of, you know, 2,000 or more chest x-rays. Why give yourself the radiation? You know you have coronary artery disease. There's no mystery. You You don't need to check if you have it. You have it. I guarantee you have it. So why not start treating it? And what I'm getting at here, too, is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine is every day at every hospital in the Western world, you've got a river of patients coming in. And to me, it reminds me of like in the old days, going on a pilgrimage to Canterbury. Oh, I'm going for my CAT scan. I'm going for my x-ray. I'm going for my ultrasound. I'm going for my blood test. I'm going for my colonoscopy. I'm going for my mammogram, all this stuff. Patients love going for all this test and they go, I'm proactive, I'm screening. You know what? You don't cure anything with those procedures or those diseases, those tests. With a colonoscopy, you can cure a polyp in a sense. But what I'm saying is the smart move is I'm eating 100% plant-based now. I no longer eat oils. That's how you cure stuff. And what you want is the result. So all I'm trying to say is people mistake all this testing, 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 high-tech, high-tech. You're not curing anything. You don't cure anything with a CAT scan. You don't cure anything with an MRI. You you get diagnostic information, and sometimes that's very valuable. Don't get me wrong. Those things have a role. But I just know from my experience of patients they think they're, they're helping themselves with all this imaging. Like they'll be going for kidney cyst follow-ups, a benign cyst for five years or more. Becoming a vegan, low-fat vegan, learning how to avoid toxins, getting your exercise, getting your sleep, managing your stress, having a sense of purpose. All of those things cure people, get you better. So fine, go for all your tests, but just be aware of what really actually cures you so you you put your efforts into what matters.
0: Very good. Good answer. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I wanted to, everybody, click like to show your appreciation for what Dr. Rogers shared with us today. And Dr. Rogers, can you please tell us about what you do and how we can find you on social media?
2: Uh, Yeah, I have a YouTube channel, Peter Rogers MD, and I post some videos there a a lot of the times. Um, So, you know, that was kind of what I came to. I, I went, you know, my kids are grown up, my wife works, I sit around by myself, I read through all the books, and I try to understand things, and I'm like, holy crap the conventional medical textbooks are wrong on everything, on all the chronic diseases, They're basically every single chapter on the major diseases is is absolutely wrong. And they almost all say the same thing. Well, nobody really knows what causes this disease. It's part genetic, um, but just take our pill. We'll try to slow it down. That's what it says for hypertension, for coronary artery disease, for autoimmune disease and on and on and on. And so then I started reading all the epidemiology, the biochemistry, the molecular biology from all these different fields. And I think that's sort of unique about me is that I'm, pretty much able to read in any field. Okay. And I got tons of experience. I'm bored in three fields. I've been a doctor over 30 years, including, you know, the surgical component, the radiological component, the surgical internship. So anyways, what I'm saying is I see that this information is not available. The doctors don't know it, yet alone the patients know it. And the doctors change even tell the patient because they don't know it themselves. And this is the most important stuff. So that's why I make this YouTube channel. I just do it. Uh, cause, uh, I think it's necessary. You know, what the heck am I going to do? I got nothing. I think it's about the best use of my time. And uh, so you just, you know, that's why I do it.
0: Well, we definitely appreciate it. And you can see by people that are tuning in to your YouTube channel and coming to see you when you're on broadcast like mine. People want to hear your wisdom. And I want to thank you, Dr. Rogers, for sharing your wisdom with my Green Warriors today so that we Thanks. may all uh, live long and prosper. So, Dr. Rogers, people that are concerned about atherosclerosis, what's your final take-home message for a green word?
2: Well, I'm saying is, you know, and you're going to, everybody has these little contraindictions, but what about this, but what about this, but what about this? And what I'm saying is, look at the epidemiology, look at the Esselstyn results, you look at the Ornish results, look at Pritikin's results, and it's pretty obvious, the low-fat, low-sodium vegans, they don't get atherosclerosis. It does not progress. And the other thing I see a lot of people do is, you know, you, you move up, let's say, two steps forward of healing and improvement in a day. And if you're if you're doing bad habits, like you're eating fat, putting a lot of salt on your food and, and drinking alcohol, you knock yourself back down two steps. So you never really progress. So you have to, like, stop all the bad stuff and do all the good stuff and then you'll see the progress. But that's what it takes to make progress. And and a big effort is better than a small effort. And if you say, well, I don't know if I really want to live like this. Well, just try it for a month or two. And once you start to see the progress, I think you're going to like it.
0: Well, Green Warriors, tell us what you're going to remember about today's presentation. There's a lot that we learned today. And um, I know that it wasn't necessarily from this presentation, but one thing that always sticks in my mind is the Red blood cells and how they can uh, are negatively charged, and how that they can uh, have bridging molecules that will make them stick together and have difficulty passing through. So, every time if you're considering a high fat meal or or not uh, eating on plan, think about that and think about what's going on in your body and tell us what your your takeaway is, Green Warrior, so we can put that in the comments. I want to thank Jess Tess Voice. She did the promos, and she also helped with social media, getting the word out. And I want to thank everybody for getting the word out when you share this broadcast. Jess Tess Voice, tell us who's coming up next.
1: Have you ever wondered if it's possible to break free from the grip of anorexia and emerge stronger than ever? Learn how Michelle Sen not only conquered anorexia, but also overcame digestive issues and allergies. And learn how her story can offer hope and inspiration for your own recovery journey. Join us on Wednesday, December 6th, 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on Be Green with Amy Live.
0: And if you're interested in getting five free recipes sent to your inbox, go to my website, begreenwithamy.com slash join, and I'll be happy to send them to you. And you can make healthy, taste delicious just like I do here at home. And what I'd like to do is ask everybody to type in the comments my tagline, which is, be strong, be well, and be green. And Dr. Rogers, he's going to join me as we sign off and he'll be saying the last word, but you guys can type in the whole thing. Are you ready, Dr. Rogers? Yes. So until I see all of you again, remember, be strong, be well, and be
1: Be green.
0: green. (laughs) Thanks again, Dr. Rogers for everything. Thanks Green Warriors for joining us
1: now you can listen to be green with amy expert interviews wherever you go listen while walking meal prepping or traveling find be green with amy on apple google alexa amazon or virtually anywhere you find podcasts be strong be well and be green